The Decision. Chapter One. My name is Exemili Escort Istil. I don't know if my fellow Andalites will ever recognize that name. I guess some of the story I'm about to tell will appear in the scientific journals. I mean, the accident that occurred to me has certainly rewritten the science of zero space mass extrusion during morphing. But I doubt that my real name will be used. I doubt that the whole truth will be told, and I guess that's a good thing. You see, there are traitors among us. Yes, traitors among our fellow Andalites, Andalites working for the Yurks. I am the only living Andalite witness to the Ascalon incident. Only I and my human friends, Prince Jake, Cassie, Tobias, Rachel, and Marco, know what truly happened aboard that ship. On war-torn planet Lyra, and even though I know what happened, I will never know why it happened. I know it seems impossible even to conceive of Andalites as traitors. I know the very idea makes any decent Andalite sick inside. But I am telling the truth. The Ascalon incident happened. We were betrayed by one of our own. My name is Axemili Escorth Istil. Brother of Alfinger Cyrano Shamtul, and I swear by his memory that everything I say here is true. I am the only Andalite presently located on planet Earth. Don't bother looking Earth up on any of the databases; you won't find much information. The truth is, we lost a dome ship in orbit above this planet. The Yurks destroyed it. We lost my brother, Prince Alfinger, in that battle too. But before he died, Alfangor broke our law and gave the secret Andalite morphing power to five human youths. The Yurks are after this planet now. They are invading Earth in their usual style. The Yurk parasite slugs have an easy time entering human heads, wrapping themselves around human brains, enslaving humans as they did the Hortbejir and the Geds, as they hope someday to do to us. I live among these humans now, with the group of young humans who were given the morphing power by Alfangor. They call themselves Animorphs. They resist the Yurk invasion of Earth, all alone, as far as we know. I live with humans. I respect them, but my hearts are still Andalite. No matter what anyone ever says about me and about what happened on Lyra, I am true to my own people. And yet, there are times when I wonder, who are my own people, my race and species, my family, my friends, my allies. My human friends insist on reducing my name to Ax. You see, humans communicate by making mouth sounds. Most Andalites understand the concept of a mouth, I believe. And although my full name is easily pronounced in Andalite thought speak. It is somewhat long and complex for primitive human mouth sounds. I am alone on this planet, the only one of my species, the only Andalite among all the humans. 
So I have used the morphing technology to create a human morph. And sometimes, for two hours at a time, I become human and pass among humans as one of them. I am very good at passing for human, if I say so myself. I have learned the customs and habits perfectly so that I seem entirely normal. That's how I am able to pass, even in the most human of places. For example, the mall, which is a place full of shops, most which sell artificial skin and artificial hooves, technically known as clothing and shoes. The mall also houses the most wonderful eating places. You see, in addition to making sounds with their mouths, humans use them to eat. They place foods into their mouth opening and grind the food with teeth while adding saliva. This involves a sense called taste. Taste is very, very powerful. Oh yes. I was wearing artificial skin and artificial hooves like a human. I approached the counter of my very favorite eating place. Hello, I said, making mouth sounds with my human mouth. I will work for money. 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 I should explain. Money is a sort of abstract human concept. You give amounts of money to various people in society, and they in turn give you useful items. Do you want to order something? The human said to me. I require money so that I may exchange it for the delicious cinnamon buns, I explained. The human blinked his eyes. So you do want to order or you don't? Obviously, this was a less intelligent human. I wish to perform labor. 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 And have you give me money. Then I will use that money to acquire delicious cinnamon buns. Bunza. I'll get the manager. Bunza, I said. I find the Z sound especially enjoyable. It tickles the mouth parts. Many sounds are amusing. The manager came, and I explained my request to her. Well, I can't give you a job, she said. I think you're underage, but I guess if you're hungry, I could have you clear some of those tables and give you some food. This was acceptable to me. Poor kid, she said to the other human as I turned away. A little off in the head, maybe, but a good-looking boy. I soon discovered what she meant by clearing tables. In this part of the mall, there are many tables, surrounded by eating places. The tables were littered with delicious things. On the first table, I found thin, crisp, salty, greasy triangles, covered with a bright yellow secretion. I ate them and they were very good. On the next table were liquids. I drank them. One was hot. One was cold. Along with the liquids was a square of crumpled paper. Smeared inside the paper was a reddish semi-liquid product. I licked it. It was fine, but not wonderful. Then, at last, I saw what I wanted. Two large, steaming hot, glistening cinnamon buns. Two humans were sitting very near the cinnamon buns. They were going to eat my buns! I raced over as quickly as my wobbly human legs could go. 
I am clearing these tables, I cried. The humans looked at me. We haven't even eaten yet. Good, I said, relieved. I grabbed the two cinnamon buns and carried them away. Hey, hey, stop! I began to shove the first bun into my mouth. Oh, the joy! Oh, how can I ever explain to an endolite who has never possessed the sense of taste? The sensation! It was a pleasure beyond any pleasure imaginable. The warmth, the dripping sweet goo of the cinnamon bun! What are you doing? The manager cried as she came running over. I am clearing the table, I said. It is very difficult to speak while eating. Just one of the many design flaws in humans. I am terribly sorry, the manager said to the humans who were trying to take my cinnamon buns. I'll get you two fresh buns. And you, she said, pointing one of her powerful yet stubby human fingers at me. Come with me. She pulled me away, causing me to drop a small portion of the bun from my mouth. She took me into the eating place and made me sit on a chair. This involves bending the two legs and resting the weight of the body on a raised platform by pressing the fatty pads at the top of the legs against the platform. It is hard to visualize unless you've seen it. Okay, now look, son. If you're that desperate for food, there's a tray of buns here that are just a bit stale. You can help yourself, you poor kid. She indicated a square array of cinnamon buns. Perhaps a dozen in all. For me? I asked, in a voice choked with emotion. Sure, son. Go ahead and have one. Let me make one final point here. Human muff sound language is very fuzzy at times. Have one, she'd said. One mouthful? One bun? One tray? It was certainly not my fault if there was any confusion. Chapter 2 So there I am, Mirko said, cruising through the food court, minding my own business, thinking, hey, why not snag a taco? When I noticed the paramedics and the crowd all gathered around the Cinnabon. Mirko is one of my human friends. He is shorter than some humans of his age. He has dark hair and dark eyes and likes to make jokes. Jokes are humor. Humor is more common among humans than among endolites. I think they have to resort to humor. It helps them deal with the embarrassment of being so wobbly on their two ridiculous legs. And I swear, it was like this sudden, psychic feeling. I knew, I mean, I knew, somehow the Axeman was involved. So I go over and ask someone in the crowd what's happening, and she says, She? Rachel interrupted. Let me guess, some good-looking girl who normally would never even talk to you? But you figured, since there's a medical emergency, that would be a good time to hit on her? Exactly, Marco said. Rachel is a female. She has gold hair and blue eyes. She is tall for her age. Anyway, she tells me, some kid went crazy and ate an entire pan of cinnamon buns. Now, who... I ask you all, who do we know who would eat an entire pan of cinnamon buns? 
Mirko, Rachel, and the others, Prince Jake, Cassie, and Tobias, all looked at me and stretched their mouths horizontally to make grins. All except Tobias, who is a Nothlet, a person trapped in Morph. He is a hawk and has no lips. I felt I had to say something. I was not aware of the precise specifications for human stomachs, I explained. It seems there is some sort of limit on the quantity that may be consumed. Passing that limit caused an unpleasant sensation in the stomach area. It also caused me to become dizzy. The sugar rush of all time, Cassie said. Cassie is no taller than Marco. She has dark hair and eyes. Cassie is very interested in animals. By animals, humans mean all animals aside from themselves. I was out of my human morph and back in my own body. We were in the forest that begins at the edge of Cassie's farm. This is where I live. Tobias and me both. He eats mice, mostly in the morning. I leave the forest at night and go running across the fields, absorbing grass through my hooves, the way any sensible creature should. We were waiting in the woods for the arrival of a strange ally, Eric the Chi. The Chi are a race of androids. They were created by a now-dead race called Pemalites. The Chi and the last remaining Pemalites came to Earth thousands of years ago. They were escaping the devastation of their homeworld. The Pemalites did not survive. Their principled, non-violent, but shockingly powerful androids did. Prince Jake looked at his watch. Humans are always lost in time. They are constantly certain that it is later or earlier than they thought. I have never known a human to say, Oh look, it's exactly what time I thought it was. Prince Jake said, I was about to mention that Eric was late, but I guess it's still earlier than I thought it was. You see what I mean. He's coming now, Tobias said. He can move very quietly when he wants to, but I can see him from up here. Hawks have excellent hearing and really extraordinary powers of sight. But still, they can only look in one direction at a time, just like humans. Eric approached, exactly on time, of course. He appears to be a normal human boy, but of course that is merely a very advanced holographic illusion. Beneath the hologram is an android of grey and white metals, somewhat resembling an earth dog walking on two legs. The Chi are incapable of violence. A prohibition against violence is written into their programming. Yet with our help, Eric was once able to disable that programming. He saved our lives in a terrible battle, but he chose then to surrender the power to do violence. However, even though they cannot do battle, the Chi have managed to infiltrate the Yurk organization on Earth, and from time to time, Eric brings us useful information. Hi, everyone, Eric said. Hey, Eric, Marco said. What's up? Eric shrugged, exactly like any other young human of his apparent age. Not much. Just something strange. Something that doesn't make sense. At least not as far as we can see. Prince Jake nodded. 
he looked up at Tobias. Are we clear? Tobias dropped from the branch he was on, flopped his wings, and soared above the treetops, out of sight. Sorry, Prince Jake said to Eric. I want to be sure we're safe. Eric made an amused grin. Do you think I came alone? Three of my people are spared out around us, keeping watch. Tobias will never spot them, not even with his eyes. Oh, want to put some money on that? Prince Jake asked. Tobias flew back and landed on the same branch. He began to calmly preen his feathers. All clear. You didn't see anything at all? Prince Jake asked, sounding disappointed. Well, I saw two G projecting tree holograms, and another one trying to pass himself off as a rock, but nothing to worry about. The humans and Eric all laughed. I know these woods, Tobias said smugly. You think you can just park some big old holographic willow tree where it doesn't belong, and I won't notice? Please! Eric did a sort of bow toward Tobias. Remind me never to underestimate you, Brother Hawk. Then, suddenly serious, he told us what he'd come to say. The second-ranking guy in the Secret Service, a man named Hewlett Aldershot III, is in a hospital in a coma. He was hit by a car while walking across the street. We don't know why he's here in this area, but we do know this. No one even knows he's in the hospital. His family doesn't know? Cassie said. No, no one. Not his family, not his boss, Jane Carnegie. No one. The hospital is heavily infiltrated by Yerks. Half the staff are human controllers. His name isn't even in the hospital computers. And, oh, by the way, the car that hit him? A minivan belonging to none other than our friend, Chapman. Prince Jake nodded. He is the leader of the Animorphs. I consider him to be my prince. As an artist, I require someone to be my prince. Well, well, Prince Jake said. I guess we'd better check it out. Chapter 3 I have a question, Marco said. If you already have a Hewlett Aldershot and a Hewlett Aldershot Jr., what kind of parent is going to go in and inflict that name on a third kid? He must have gotten beaten up after school every single day of his life. It was the next day. Marco, Rachel, and I were on the edge of a third-story window. We were in Seagull Morph. According to my human friends, seagulls are like pigeons. They can go anywhere without looking suspicious. I am sure they are right although I have no idea what a pigeon is, nor can I imagine what a suspicious bird might be. I'm just saying, for all we know, Chapman just ran this guy down because he couldn't stand the name. Rachel sighed. Why does Jake make me go on missions with you, Marco? What? I shouldn't talk? I shouldn't make conversation? We've been hanging around on this stupid ledge for an hour and a half. Me, you, and Axe. Just an hour and a half? Rachel said. Funny, it seems so much longer. The time when you're talking just drags on and on and on, Marco. On and on and... Very funny. 
Actually, it has only been one of your hours and 18 minutes, I said helpfully. One of our hours, Marco said. You know, they really are your hours now, too. This is Earth. You're stuck here. Go ahead and set your watch to local time. Marco was bored. We all were. But Marco gets snappish when he's bored. We were on the sill outside the private hospital room of Hilbert Aldershot III. This was our second shift on the windowsill. We'd done a shift earlier in the morning, waiting for close to the two-hour limit. Then Prince Jake and Cassie had taken a turn. Then it was back to us. This is so totally not what I wanted to be doing on a beautiful Saturday, with major sales on at Express and Old Navy, Rachel complained. It's my turn to go fly around. Be right back. She flapped away, leaving me and Marco. We fluttered our wings a little and jerked our heads and marched back and forth on the stone sill. We were trying to act like seagulls. That's why Rachel had to fly off. It was the right thing for a seagull to do. Is there something unusual about the name Hewlett Alder Look? I said, interrupting myself. A new human is entering the room, and I believe he is familiar. Rachel! Marco yelled in thought speak. Go find Jake and Cassie and Tobias. We have company. Who? Visser three in his human morph, I said. The abomination! Seagulls have eyes on the sides of their heads, so I turned one eye to stare in through the window. Yes, it was him, Visser Three, leader of the invasion of Earth. Visser Three is, of course, the only Yurk ever to successfully seize and infest an Andalite body. When he took that body, he also got the Andalite morphing power that went with it. So only Visser Three, among all the Yurks in the universe, has the power to morph. I felt the slow rage I always feel on seeing the foul creature, my brother's murderer. Once I came close to avenging my brother. Once I almost destroyed Visser Three. But in the end, I failed, and he still lives. The next time, there will be no mistakes. Whoa, Visser Three and Inhuman Morph, Marco said nervously. Definitely something major going on. Two human doctors came into the room. They spoke to the viscer. They spoke respectfully, fearfully, shaking. I could not hear them through the glass, but clearly they knew who and what Visser Three was. Visser Three began to demorph, to return to Andalite form. From the human head, the twin stalk eyes appeared. From the human chest, the front two legs began to grow. From the base of the human spine, the long, swift, dangerous, andalite tail began to extend. To my left, a swift flash of brown and tan with a hint of red. Tobias swooping past. I kept my other eye focused through the glass. The blue and tan fur rippled across the formerly human skin. Visser Three was on all four legs now. Tail cocked and ready. He is very sure he's safe in this place, I said. Otherwise, he would never demorph like this. 
The doctors aren't too happy, though, Marco observed. The doctors were shaking. Obviously, something was wrong. Then, in a flash, Mr. Three pressed his tail against one doctor's throat. One twitch would send the doctor's head rolling across the floor. Now that he was back in his indolate body, we could hear Visor Three's unguarded thought speak. I gave orders that this human be cured! He raged. There is no point placing one of our people in his head if he is unable to move. The doctor said something. Something very respectful. Very careful. I don't care about his brainstem. I want him repaired. Do you have any idea how useful this human would be to us? He is the number two man in the organization that guards their president. He would have access to half the secrets on this planet. That's why I arranged for him to be injured and brought here. Prince Jake and Cassie flew by, both in seagull morph. What's up? Prince Jake asked. Visser 3, Prince Jake. Don't call me Prince. Yeah, I hear his thought speak. I meant, what do you see? The Visser is busy terrorizing a pair of human controller doctors. I said. Just then, Visser 3 withdrew his tail blade. The doctor collapsed and fell to his knees on the floor. His fellow doctor looked at him with pity, but made no move to help him. You leave me with no choice. If I can't use this creature as a host, I'll have to acquire him and morph him. I can't spend all my time in his form. I can't live his life. But using him, I can get close to his superior. I can use this morph to seize her instead. The doctor who was still standing spoke. He smiled. He looked encouraging and enthusiastic. The visor flicked his tail hit the doctor with the flat of the blade, and knocked him across the room. Don't tell me it's all worked out for the best, Visser Three sneered. I still want this human repaired. That's the only reason I let you live. Three days from now, this human will be well, or the two of you will be very, very, very sick. Then, one stock eye turned to stare directly at me. The second stock eye followed, and I began to have a very bad feeling. Chapter 4 Visser 3 moved away, out of sight. Was he eyeballing us? Moko asked. Then he answered his own question. He was eyeballing us. Prince Jake, I said in thought speak, only my friends could hear. What should we do? What's happened? Prince Jake asked. He eyeballed us. That's what happened, Marco said. The visor has moved out of our sight, I said. Okay. Look, he may suspect you're not real seagulls, Prince Jake said. So don't behave suspiciously, or like you noticed him. One of you fly off. The other one wait a few seconds, then fly off. Like normal... Crash! The glass window exploded outward as something came blasting out through it. Marco was knocked from the sill and went tumbling out of control toward the ground. I was too shocked to react at first. Then I saw what had come bursting through the window. A kafit bird. A six-winged kafit bird. It had to be Visser 3 in morph. But how? 
Impossible! I cried in total shock. The Kafit bird only lives in one place in the universe, the Andalite homeworld. The Kafit shook off the glass shards and banked sharply back towards me. Its razor-sharp killing beak was aimed at me like a missile. I dropped from the sill, wings folded. The deadly beak missed me by a feather. I opened my wings, caught air, and flopped hard. The Kafit was on me. The six wings gave it terrific speed. Axe, what is that thing? Cassie cried. I didn't have time to answer. My human friends didn't understand. The Kafit lives by spearing tree-living creatures. It is fast, accurate, and deadly to small creatures. And at that moment, I was a small creature. Everyone on that bird! Prince Jake roared. He can't take all of us! Tobias, where are you? Too far away! Tobias said grimly. I turned my head to look for the Kafit. Stupid! My head acted like a rudder and made me turn, right into the path of the Kafit. I flapped wildly, crazily, too slow. The Kafit's beak sliced through the underside of my wing. Ah! I yelled. I turned and flew in abject panic. I flopped my wings and skimmed twenty feet above the ground. I knew the Kafit was faster. Was it more agile, too? But part of my mind just kept saying, How? 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 How had Visser Three acquired the DNA of a Kafit bird? Had the abomination actually set foot on Andalite grass? I was flying over a major street now. What the humans call fast food restaurants were below me. The Visser was inches behind me. He'd have me in three, two, I flared, killed my speed, twisted my tail and head to shoot me sideways, and the Kafit bird blew past. He was faster. I could outturn him, but only when I had the benefit of surprise. How many more times could I trick him that way? A nice maneuver, Andalite, the visitor said, his thought speak suddenly in my head. Why not try it again? I was almost angry enough to answer. But, of course, Visser Three could not be sure I was an Andalite in Morph. He was guessing. If I remained silent, he might decide I was just an innocent seagull who happened to be on the sill. I saw Prince Jake and the others racing to catch up. Prince Jake, do not help me. If you help me, he'll know for sure that we are not just birds. Stop trying to be a hero, Prince Jake said. Tobias! I'm doing the best I can! I got dead air here! Tobias yelled. I caught a flash of the big red-tailed hawk laboring to get altitude for a killing dive. But he was no more than ten feet above me and too far off to decide to help. I was on my own. Fine, so much the better, I said to myself, trying to sound braver than I felt. I flapped madly toward a large golden sign in the shape of two conjoined arches. Let's see how fast the Kafit bird can turn. I aimed straight for the hole in one arch, shot through it, and instantly turned. Visser Three rocketed past, outside the arch, and turned to come back toward me. But now I reversed and went back through the second arch. The Kafit bird was after me, but now his greater speed was useless, and his broad wingspan made it tough to fit through the arches. Visser Three circled at blazing speed, 
but I threaded my way again and again through the arches. Good job, Axeman, Tobias cried. Hang in there, I have him in my sights. Humans were gathering beneath us, gaping up at the bizarre spectacle. Hey, that bird has too many wings, one yelled. Must be a mutant bird. Go, seagull, go! Whap! My wingtip cut the edge of an arch. I stuttered through the air. I missed my turn. Ah! The razor-sharp beak cut an inch from my wingtip. I fell. I hit the black roof of the fast-food restaurant. I staggered and hopped into a narrow space between two large, loud cooling fans. I saw the viscer swoop by low overhead, and I knew he had landed on the roof, too. I began to demorph as fast as I could. The roof was surrounded by a raised wall. The humans on the ground could not see us. And once I was indolent again, the bird would pose no more threat. From my talons, hooves began to grow. My tail feathers melted together and formed the beginnings of my tail blade. But as I grew, the space became tight. I was wedged in between the cooling units, with fans blasting me with greasy smells. I forced my way out, half andalite, half bird, staggering on misshapen legs, out into the open center of the roof. And there, I saw him. Like me, he was demorphing. Like me, he was part bird, part andalite. But this was no true andalite. Give yourself up, andalite. The visor sneered. And I may even let you live. Let's see how good you are, tail to tail, I said, once more trying to sound far more confident than I was. His tail emerged. My tail emerged. And we stood, seemingly two andalites, preparing for a battle to the death. I looked into the eyes of the abomination, and there I saw evil. And then I saw something that made my heart sleep. Because I also saw fear. Chapter 5 It had been a very long time since any Andalites fought tail to tail, except as part of military training or as a sport. And this was no sport. There, amid the blowing fans and the smell of grease and fried meat, Visser 3 and I stood face to face. Two seagulls fluttered down to land, then two more. My stock eye noted the predator's outline of a hawk on the wing overhead. Let's demorph, Rachel said, directing her thought speak to include me. I hoped she'd remember not to let Visser 3 hear it. Humans sometimes forget that thought speak can be targeted to everyone or just a list of people. We can't demorph, Jake said to me. We'd have to pass through our human forms first. We can't demorph unless we are absolutely sure Visitor 3 is not going to walk away from this. If we demorph, he won't walk away, Rachel said grimly. I kept my eyes trained on the Visser. My tail was on a hair trigger. The slightest movement, and I would strike. I said, Prince Jake, we can't take the chance. If he ever learns you are humans, your lives will be worthless. I can avenge Alfangor alone. This isn't the place, Cassie said reasonably. 
People down below saw a six-winged bird come up here. Someone is probably on their way. I barely heard her. The visitor was edging sideways, looking for an opening. I arched my tailblade high, ready to block his attack. Axe, can you back off without getting hurt? Prince Jake asked. Cassie's right. We don't want this fight here. Part of me wanted to say, Yes, yes we can let the visitor escape. He was bigger than I. His tail would have a half-foot advantage in reach. He was taller, which made it easier for him to strike my eyes, my head. But another part of me had seen the look of fear in the visitor's eyes. He'd realized he was in a trap. He'd realized he was facing a battle to the death, where the odds were not at all that favorable to him. I wanted to see more of that fear from him. I wanted to see the terror as I pressed my tailblade against his throat and said, This is for my brother. Sudden movement. I struck. My tailblade missed its target, but slashed the abomination across his shoulder. In the confusion, I didn't understand at first. Everything happened at once. His sudden movement. My strike. And then... The graceful flight as his leap took him over the wall. He fell from sight. I ran to the edge and craned to look over. A human girl below was crying. I swear, I swear I saw a blue horse jump off the roof. You're crazy. Where'd it land then? Her friend said. I could see where he'd landed. In a large square trash bin. In the dumpster, the first girl said. I glared down at the visor. His rear leg was broken from the fall. He was morphing to human as fast as he could. He looked up at me with eyes blazing hatred. I wanted to say something. I wanted to shout some threat. Make some dire promise. But all I did was stare eye to eye with Visser 3. And then, as his human mouth appeared, he sneered. Come on, Axe. Prince Jake said, We're done here. Chapter 6 That night, I ran across the far pastures of Cassie's ranch and tried to figure out my emotions. It was a wet night. Rain was falling, although not hard by Earth standards. The grass was wet and moist. I could feel my hooves picking up the worms that come out of the ground when it's wet. There would be extra protein in my diet, which was the last thing I needed. Too much protein keeps me awake. The clouds overhead hid the moon and the stars. This made me sad. I like to find the home star at night. It has become a sort of unofficial ritual. Something I do for myself to remind myself that there is a place for me in the galaxy. I may not be there, but the place does exist. Or am I just fooling myself? Yes, I have a home planet, and a home on that planet, and a people like me. But will I ever fit in there again? Have I changed too much, been with humans too long? I saw the lights of Cassie's home. Once I had morphed into Prince Jake and gone there for dinner with Cassie's parents. I have Prince Jake's DNA from the time when he became infested by a yerk. 
It's a treasured memory. Dinner with Cassie, I mean, not morphing Prince Jake. Sometimes, when I'm alone in the woods and thinking about home, I find myself thinking about that evening instead. I ran faster now, no longer concerned with eating, but just wanting to feel the impact of raindrops on my face and my chest. If I could run fast enough, all the drops would hit my face and chest, and none would fall down on my back. I saw a wooden rail fence, almost too high to jump. But I ran straight at it, kicked, tucked my front legs, and sailed over. There was a thump as one hoof nicked the top rail. I landed easily and realized I was panting. I slowed down and trotted back toward the woods. I could have beaten him, I told myself. I could have forced the fight. I could have struck again before he had a chance to get away. Another part of my mind answered, No, you would have lost. He's taller, bigger, he's more experienced. The Andalite body Visser Three controls used to belong to a great warrior. Visser Three has all of that warrior's skill and experience. You went tail to tail with Visser Three and let him get away. I went tail to tail with Visser Three and at least I didn't run away. You wanted to. You were frightened. I'd be a fool not to be frightened. But I didn't run. He did. I realized I'd come to rest, standing beneath a particularly tall pine tree just back from the edge of a meadow. Tobias's meadow. What's up, Axeman? He called down from the darkness above. Are you awake? Yeah. I have this slight tendency to wake up when big, blue, scorpion-tailed alien centaurs go crashing around in the woods like a herd of ruptured elephants. Tobias is sometimes harsh when awakened. It is a human characteristic that he has not lost. I apologize for waking you. How do elephants come to be ruptured? Tobias sighed. He floated down to a lower branch, then sailed over a fallen log. You're stewing, aren't you? What? Stewing. Going over things again and again in your head. Around and around in circles. Asking yourself the same questions again and again. Then starting it all over again. How did you know? Look, Axe. The first time I saw Visser 3, and you know when that was. I cried I was so scared. He was an alien. He was unfamiliar to you. Alfangor was an alien. He was unfamiliar. He didn't scare me. Visser 3 did. Not because of what he looked like, but because I could feel something coming from him. Like a dark cloud. Like a smell, almost. This feeling. I don't know any other word for it. Like I was looking at something that needed to be destroyed. He was evil. I felt it. And I had this horrible understanding, this knowledge, that one way or the other, that evil was going to touch me and change me. So I just cried. I have met Visser Three before, I said stonily. I should not have been afraid. What could you have done? I could have forced the fight. What if you'd lost? 
What if I'd won? It would have been a terrible blow against the Yurks. I would have avenged Alfangor. I would have done a great service for my people. Look, Axe, you went up against him. He backed down, not you. He was surrounded and outnumbered. He thought each of you was another Endalite warrior, ready to demorph and attack. He retreated with honor. Honor, Tobias said derisively. He's a cold-blooded killer. He's an invader in someone else's land. He's just another gangster. Murderers don't have honor. I should let you go back to sleep. Okay. You want to drop it? It's dropped. He looked around, blinking, almost as blind as a human in the darkness. Hard to sleep when it's raining anyway. Tobias, the bird that Visser 3 morphed, it is an Andalite bird. It's called a Kafit bird, from my home planet. You're thinking, what, that Visser 3 must have been on the Andalite homeworld in order to acquire it? Yes, I am worried that the Abomination has set foot on the Andalite homeworld. I felt Tobias grow tense. Now he was beginning to understand. But he said, Sometimes people must take animals off the homeworld, right? I mean, just the way you can find an African lion in a zoo in America, Europe, wherever, right? So, okay, someone totally innocent takes one of these birds off your planet. They get hijacked or whatever, and it ends up in Visitor 3's hands. I wanted to believe it was possible, so I said, Yes, that could be it. But I didn't believe it. I believed that Visser Three had either been to my world, or that some ally of his had been there. Either way, it meant only one thing. The Yurks had begun to reach into the one safe place in the galaxy. My home. Chapter 7 We met at the barn where Cassie and her father care for sick or injured non-human animals. It is called the Wildlife Rehabilitation Clinic. It is a large, dark building made of wood. Within it are numerous cages made of steel wire, and within the cages are the sick animals. Tobias was high in the rafters. From up there, he can see out through a sort of window, and can warn us if anyone is approaching. Everyone else was on the ground level. Cassie was working pushing piles of dirty hay with a very large three-pronged fork. Prince Jake would occasionally lift something out of her way. Mirko and Rachel were just chilling. That's what humans call it. I believe it refers to the fact that when humans sit very still and do nothing, their body temperature drops. Thus, chilling. Someday, when I am old, too old to be a warrior, I will write a book about humans and their strange habits and speech and technology. For example, did you know that humans invented books before computers? Because of this, they believe computers to be superior, despite the very obvious fact that it takes one of their computers as much as 30 seconds to load a page, while a book page can be accessed with zero effective delay. 
one would almost dismiss humans as a quaint, unimportant, backward race. Except for two things. First, these are, after all, the creatures who have raised the art of taste to incredible levels. Humans may be technologically primitive, but they have created buttered popcorn, the Snickers bar, chili, and cigarette butts. Although humans themselves become very upset by the idea of eating cigarette butts. And let us not forget, humans, for all their faults, have created the cinnamon bun. Someday, after the war, there will be pilgrimages of Andalites streaming to Earth to morph into humans for a day and do nothing but eat cinnamon buns. Get the extra frosting. It's worth it. Axe, are you paying attention? Marco asked. I snapped out of my daydream. Yes, of course. Because, see, I've said the same thing to you twice now, and you just keep staring off into space like you're a million miles away. Please tell me a third time, and I will pay attention. I said, by Visser 3 morphing an Andalite bird, maybe he was sending a message. I mean, he still thinks we're all Andalites. He was pretty sure he was chasing an Andalite and morph, right? So he chooses to morph an Andalite bird? That's not a coincidence. That's a message. And that's the second reason not to dismiss humans as unimportant. They are unbelievably quick to adapt. Just a few months ago, Marco didn't believe there was life on other planets. Now he's accepted that fact, absorbed an entirely new worldview, found himself in the middle of a war using morphing technology he doesn't understand, and even managed to have insights that I missed. Yes, I said slowly. Yes, but why? What message? Marco shrugged his shoulders. He's rattling your cage. It's like, hey pal, while you're stuck here on Earth, I've been in and out of your house, hanging out with your buddies, eating your mom's cookies. My mother doesn't make cookies, I pointed out. The sense of taste is unknown among... The visitor's yanking your chain, Rachel said. Messing with your mind, Cassie agreed. Jerking you around, Tobias said. Trying to baffle you with... Oh, never mind, Prince Jake said. The point is, you have two questions. How did Visser Three acquire this bird? And why did he morph it to attack you? That's not the real question, though, Cassie said. The real question is, what are we going to do about Hewlett Aldershot III? Marco stuck up his hand. Get him to change his name? You know, it's a pretty good plan Visser Three has, Prince Jake pointed out. He acquires our man Hewlett Aldershot III. Then he walks into work at the Secret Service offices, punches up anything he wants on the computer, sits in on secret conferences, and ends up knowing everything the Secret Service knows. What does the Secret Service know? I asked. A lot, Marco said. Ah. Oh. It's not just what he can find out. It's who he can talk to and get access to, Rachel said. He can find out if any information about your activities ever gets to... Whoa! Marco shot straight up on his two wobbly legs. I can never get past thinking humans will topple over when they do that. What whoa? Prince Jake asked mildly. Whoa, as in, whoa, Rachel is right. H.A. Third can talk to anyone, right? 
He can talk to his boss, right? So if he was to walk in and say, Boss, guess what? Parasite slugs from outer space are invading Earth. Well, okay, they'd throw him in the nuthouse. But if he was to walk in and say, Parasite slugs from outer space are invading Earth, and guess what? I can turn into a rhinoceros. And then he actually did turn into a rhinoceros. Well, suddenly, boom, the secret is out. The Yurks are screwed. Unless his boss is a controller, Rachel said. If she were a controller, why would Visser 3 be bothering with H.A. 3rd? Cassie pointed out. But then she turned to Marco. What exactly are you thinking? Are you thinking about morphing Mr. Aldershot? Duh, yeah. We don't do that, Cassie said. I thought we decided we don't do that. We don't morph humans. I morphed Prince Jake, I said. I was excited by Marco's idea. But there are times when my human friends are reluctant to do whatever it takes to hurt the Yerks. Sometimes, so am I. And Cassie morphed Rachel that time, Tobias said. First of all, Axe, you're not a human, so maybe it's okay if you morph Jake. Besides, Jake would have given his permission if he hadn't been infested with a Yerk. And Rachel did give me her permission, Cassie said. Excuse me, Marco said with an edge of sarcasm in his voice. Our man, H.A. Third, can't give permission. He's a vegetable. He's a carrot. He's a cabbage. He's a tomato. I thought tomatoes were fruit, Rachel interrupted, trying to provoke Marco. It's called a persistent vegetative state. Thanks so much for your sensitivity, Marco, Cassie said. But we don't know if Mr. Aldershot is that bad off. He could just be in a coma. We don't have the right to go stealing his DNA. The man is a Brussels sprout, Marco said. We'd never get in there anyway, Prince Jake said. Visser 3 knows we know. We have to be inhuman morph to acquire Aldershot's DNA. You think we could do that with Visser 3 on guard? Not likely. Everyone looked downcast. Prince Jake was correct. But then Cassie said, Oh man. What? Marco demanded. Cassie sighed. I'm totally against this, but... But? But? But what? Cassie turned to me. Axe, is it possible to acquire DNA from blood alone? Yes, it should be. Blood? Rachel made a face. We're going to get this guy's blood? Not me, my friend. Hepatitis? HIV? Uh-uh. Diseases cannot be transmitted during acquiring, I said quickly. The acquiring process absorbs only DNA, and that DNA is isolated, encapsulated within your own bloodstream, in a super-low temperature, and thus very stable, neutron molecule sphere. You see... I think my brain just fell asleep, Marco interrupted. So, okay, the blood is safe for us. So, Cassie, how do we get it? Cassie explained. All the other humans, even Tobias, said, Gross. They said, Gross, very loudly and repeatedly. I've learned something from my time with humans. When they say something is gross, they are almost always right. Chapter 8 so, how do I acquire it without it acquiring me at the same time? Prince Jake asked nervously.
Don't be a big baby, Marco said. Like you've never been bitten by a mosquito? Never in cold blood, Prince Jake said. It was several days later. My human friends attend school five days in a row. Then they do not attend for two days. They don't know why. But they try and arrange for missions to take place on non-school days. We were in the barn, surrounding a transparent glass box. In the box were a number of small, fragile-looking flying insects. You need to catch one in your hand. Don't squeeze too hard or you'll kill it, Cassie said. Like this. She stuck her hand in the box. After two unsuccessful attempts, she enclosed a mosquito in her hand. She withdrew her hand, covered the box again, and began to focus on the mosquito. After a moment, she opened her eyes. Okay, who's next? Just hand me your mosquito, Marco said. It probably already bit you, so maybe it's not hungry anymore. We can't all morph the same mosquito, Cassie said. Only females suck blood. Males are useless. Amen, Rachel said, then laughed. So what's that mosquito in your hand? Marco demanded. Like I know, Cassie said. I don't have a magnifying glass that good. And even if I did, how exactly do you tell a male from a female? That's easy, Marco said. The males think loud belching is funny, and the females don't. Is there any chance we could just get on with this? Prince Jake asked. Yes, I said. I do not fear the bite of these tiny insects. I put my hand inside the glass cage. I had some difficulty grabbing one of the creatures, though. Human hands are stronger and faster than Andalite hands. In the end, Cassie grabbed a mosquito and handed it to me. Thank you, I said, and began to acquire the necessary DNA. When we had all finished, Prince Jake said, Okay, let's go. We morphed two birds of prey to fly quickly to the hospital. With hairier eyes, I saw that the human Hewlett Aldershot III was still in his hospital bed. But there was a major difference. There were now four large humans seated around him. In the room next door to the left, we saw four more. And in the room next door to the right, another four. Human controllers, no doubt. And no doubt, heavily armed. Twelve armed humans to protect Hewlett Aldershot III from us. Kind of flattering, actually, Rachel said. Twelve guys? And maybe more we don't see. The Yurks must have some high-ranking people in this hospital, Cassie observed. To get two private rooms just for guards like that? So how do we get in? Marco wondered. How about a diversion? Rachel suggested. I go into Elephant Morph, Jake does his rhinoceros, and we rip that place apart. I said, as I understand, we each hope to bite the human so that we can be reasonably sure of extracting sufficient blood. But Rachel, before you can go from elephant to mosquito, you must pass through human. I, on the other hand, have no need of an intermediate stage, and nothing would draw the attention of a bunch of controllers better than an endolite. 
It made perfect sense. Prince Jake agreed that it made sense. So while the others went up to the roof and morphed back to human, in preparation for becoming mosquitoes, I landed in a dark open window at the far end of the hospital. I fluttered inside, waited, listening. I heard human breathing. My hairier eyes adjusted to the darkness, and I could make out a young human female looking very frail in her bed. I demorphed as quickly as I could, shedding feathers and growing fur. Suddenly, the girl's eyes opened. Who are you? she demanded. Are you a fairy? No, I am an endolite. It was all I could think of to say. Besides, I felt reluctant to lie to a sick child. What's your name? My name is Aximili Escorth Isfil. That's a funny name, she said. Then she closed her eyes and began to sleep once more. I took a deep breath. I moved to the door as silently as I could. I opened it and stuck one stock eye out into the hall. Two humans in white were at the far end of the hall. I took another deep breath. Well, I thought, I am supposed to create a diversion. I opened the door and stepped out into the hallway. The two humans did not see me till I had nearly reached them. Then their mouths opened very wide, and their faces began to change color. One turned white, the other red. I don't know why. Holy! Obviously, they were not controllers, or they would have been yelling Andalite, rather than holy and what the. These were innocent humans. Hello, I said. Please do not be alarmed. It's, it's some kind of mutated deer. It's got to be some kind of trick. It's got to be a trick. All right, Terry, you can come out now. Ha <laughs> ha, big laugh. I passed them by and kept walking toward the heavily guarded room of Hewlett Aldershot III. A human went past, pushing a cart loaded with food on trays. He never looked up. He just kept looking down as he went. Then I guessed he noticed my hooves. Ah! He cried, and shoved the cart so hard it turned over. Thus began the diversion. Suddenly, doors opened. Heads stuck out and looked and screamed. People came running down the hall. Most turned around when they saw me and ran the other way. Oh no, did you see it? Did you see it? It's a monster! I knew they were doing a genetic experience down in the labs. It's some kind of freak. It would almost have been insulting, if I were sensitive. But then the door to the right of Aldershot's room opened. Out stepped a human. He gaped at me for a second, then yelled, Andalite! He gaped one second too long. He yanked out a gun. I snapped my tail forward, and he quickly dropped the gun. Andalite! He screamed again, but with extra hatred this time. Now the guards came boiling out of all three rooms. They jammed into the hallway, too many to move freely. Human guns were being drawn, and I saw a couple of handheld Yurk Dracon Beam weapons too. 
In a split second, they would all start shooting. The lead slugs from the human weapons would be the most dangerous. Not just to me, but because they would rip through the walls and might hit innocent people. Shoot! Shoot him, you fools! Or Visser 3 will have us for lunch! One of the humans roared. Flap! I whipped my tail, left to right, a millimeter from slicing open the front row. They backed up, stumbling back into their fellows. Flap! I whipped again, but now they were ready to start fighting. And I was seriously outnumbered and worried about innocent human beings being hurt. Obviously, I had not planned the diversion very well. And that's when it occurred to me. The one way to keep from getting shot. I surrender! I cried. I want to defect! Chapter 9 What? I wish to defect. I am interested in joining the Yurks. I would like to become a controller. Do you have any information on membership? Is there a fee? A dozen weapons were leveled at me. From behind me, at the end of the hall, I heard other human voices. What is going on around this place? Is that a horse? Look at the eyes on its head. Where's security? The leader of the controllers made a snap decision. He hustled me out of the hallway and into the room where Hewlett Ottershot III was sleeping his comatose sleep. The room was small. Too small for all the guards. There were only five of them now. Much better odds. You wish to join us? One of the controllers asked dubiously. Actually, no. I said regretfully. Flap! I struck and the nearest guard leapt back, plowing into his men. I had about half a second before they'd recover and shoot. Flap! Crash! I shattered the window with my tail blade. Here's a trick I learned from Visser 3, I yelled. I ran three steps, ducked my upper body, flattened my stock eyes, tucked my legs, and flew through the shattered window. Down I fell. Ah! Too far, way too far, but better than getting shot. The windows open, Prince Jake, I cried. And the controllers are... Wham! Crunch! Distracted. I landed in a bush that cushioned some of my fall, but also tripped me. I rolled and tried to scramble up, but then realized, as ridiculous as it seemed, that I was trapped inside the prickly, clawing branches of the bush. The guards were firing from the window. Bullets tore the branches and slammed into the damp soil all around me. Human weapons operate on a principle of exploding gases that drive a solid metal pellet along a tube. The tube acts to spin the bullet, thus improving accuracy. It's no York Dracon Beam or Endolite Shredder, but it does a very good job of blowing large, messy holes in you. I needed to get small. Small enough to get away. I began to morph the mosquito. We're in, I heard Prince Jake say. Axe, are you okay? We think we hear gunshots, but our hearing in these morphs is fuzzy. You are correct, 
you are hearing gunfire. I said tersely. Are you okay? Tobias asked. Not really, but I hope to be soon. If I live that long, I added silently. I was shrinking rapidly, and now there were sirens wailing at a distance, coming closer. Police! I heard a human voice cry from above. We can't get arrested. If we let the Andalite escape, we'll get worse than arrested. Keep shooting. I can't see what I'm shooting at. The bushes. And it's all in shadow. I was shrinking faster. Leaves that had seemed quite small now were as big as my face. Branches that were all twisted and tiny were growing larger. Larger. They no longer trapped me. I could have walked out of the bush, except for the fact that my legs were dwindling even faster than the rest of me. Someday, Andalite scientists will find a way to make the morphing technology totally predictable and logical. But for now, it is often erratic, weird, and totally illogical, especially when morphing bizarre earth animals. My hind legs had finished shrinking when they were still as big as an earth cat's legs. Then they began to reverse and grow again. My hind legs thinned, becoming mere sticks. But their length became ridiculous, longer than the rest of me altogether. My front legs became somewhat shorter stick legs, and a third pair grew from my arms. I was no longer on all fours. I was on all sixes. I was standing on insect legs, yet most of my body was still andalite. A very small andalite, but far too large to move around on insect legs. My stock eyes crawled forward across my head, down to a point just above my main eyes. They began to extrude. They grew like some horrible, fast-sprouting tree. A long, bare stick that then sprouted new branches. Short, stunted, twisted branches. Bulging round pods popped from my head at the base of these hairy sticks these antennae, and began to move them around. My main eyes were still functioning, but from the antennae, I received a whole onslaught of new sensory input. Temperature, wind direction, sound waves from the rustling leaves, from the mutty, far-off voices, and sharp, disturbing sounds from the explosions of gunpowder and the impact thud of massive bullets all around me. I was no longer worried much about the bullets. I was too small to hit except by the most amazingly unlucky shot. I was less than an inch long and getting smaller. The dirt looked like a field strewn with boulders. The trunks of the bushes sprouting up from the ground were thicker and taller than any tree on Earth or my planet. My nostril slits closed and began to twist and push outward. Two stubby hairy pulps appeared and these immediately began feeding an entirely new set of data to my brain. Smell, but not smell as an antelite or human knows it. This was specific, targeted, directed smell. It wasn't smell that waits passively for whatever comes along. The palps were searching the molecules of the breeze, sampling, looking, hungry. Gossamer wings rose from the melting flesh on my back. My body pinched into three distinct segments, a tiny head, a muscular thorax, and a swollen, vast abdomen. 
overlapping armored plates clanked down the bottom of my abdomen. And yet, through all this, a tiny shrunken version of my Andalite main eyes continued to function. I wish they hadn't. I wished I never had to see what happened next. From my chin, from the place where a human would have had a mouth, it grew. A spear. A needle. Impossibly long. On the end were tiny serrated teeth, almost like the teeth of a saw. Inside the spear it was hollow. It was a straw. A tube for sucking blood. A retractable sheath grew along with the spear. A sheath that would help keep the needle sharp. Blood. That was my goal. That was my hunger. Blood! I fired my gossamer wings and rose, unsteady and wild, upward, upward to where my palps had located the scent they sought. The sweet scent of exhaled animal breath. The guidepost that pointed the way to food. Chapter 10 That's when my eyes stopped working. I was blind for a few seconds as the morph completed. I shrink some more, and suddenly, from my forehead, popped two bulging compound eyes. Through them, I saw a vision of reality shattered into thousands of tiny pictures. Thousands of tiny pictures, each different from the next, each a fragment of distorted light and eerie colors and nightmarish swirls of energy. I never lost control of the morph. I mean, I never forgot who I was or what I was, as sometimes happens in a morph you're doing for the first time. So it wasn't that I lost my mind. It was simply that the hunger of the mosquito was so great, so powerful, so totally clear and forceful, that I felt myself going along with it, accepting it. I was flying and knowing who I was, and yet, as the mosquito's instincts cried, Blood! Blood! I answered, Yes! Yes! Mosquitoes do not fly with the speed and acrobatic genius of a fly, or with the precision and power of a bird. They fly wildly, blown by chance breezes. The legs dangle long and drag at the air. The wings are underpowered, but the mosquito gets where it's going. It seems a harmless insect when you see it, but I have done some research. Mosquitoes transmit bacteria, viruses, and parasites. They carry the diseases, encephalitis, yellow fever, and malaria. Malaria alone kills two million humans each year. Mosquitoes are the greatest mass murderers on planet Earth. Ox! Ox! Talk to me! Prince Jake called, and I realized suddenly that he'd been yelling for some time. I am fine, I said. I have morphed to mosquito. Good, he said. Look, I know what you're feeling right now. Don't fight it. The hunger stops once you bite. Follow the smell, Cassie said. That's carbon dioxide your palps are smelling. It comes off animals, including humans. Go for it. I rose, hungry, to the open window. But there, I was confused. There were many warm, carbon dioxide-emitting creatures. The one I was looking for was lying down. Lying still. I focused on the mosquito senses. 
I struggled to put together the sound waves from my antennae, the smell of carbon dioxide from my palps, and the shattered, lurid view through my compound eyes. Huge, huge, vast beyond imagining, stretched my target. Hundreds of times my length, millions of times my weight. Hewlett Aldershot III lay prone, oozing attractive aromas. I fluttered on gossamer wings and landed. I was on a rough, uneven surface. There were bumps and ridges of warm pink flush. Here and there, like lone trees scattered on a dry plain, hairs rose like curved spears from the flesh. The flush was alive. It moved slightly, causing me to rise and fall. The human was breathing. But more fascinating than the slow rise and fall of breath was the thump, thump, thump of a drumbeat beneath my feet. A pulse. The beating pulse of blood rushing through arteries and veins. And then... Chapter 11 There was a distinct popping sound, and suddenly, instantly, I was no longer a mosquito tapping into a human's vein. I was in space. White, empty, zero space. What? What? Z-space? I cried. Maybe not the most brilliant comment, but I was confused. I kicked my legs instinctively. My andalite legs. I was back in my own body, but there was nothing to kick against. I felt no sensation of movement. No air was rushing over me. Already the lack of oxygen was beginning to cloud my brain. My eyes were going blind. My limbs were numb. Zero space. It was impossible. And yet, here I was. I looked around frantically. I turned my stock eyes in every direction. I saw my own body, inside and out. An n-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, twisted so that I could see inside my own body. And there, to one side of me, were four human bodies, spread out in the same way. Weird cross-sections. I saw Prince Jake's face, but also his beating heart, and the muscle tissues of his legs, and the inside of his brain. The same with the others. They were all writhing in agony. And there was one bird. Very still. Prince Jake! Tobias! I cried. But of course, they couldn't answer. There was no air to carry their mouth sounds. There was nothing, not even the few stray atoms and molecules that float free in regular space. There were no stars or planets. Nothing exists in zero space. I happened to catch sight of a silvery graceful creation, perhaps half a mile away. A ship! As with the bodies, I saw the inside and outside of the ship, all in one picture. I could see distorted individuals inside, going about their duties. But even mind-numb and gaping at a confused nightmare vision, I knew what sort of creatures they were. Andalites. It was an Andalite ship. Its zero-space engines burned brightly, but it was not moving away. It hit me in a flash. I knew what had happened. As any Andalite knows, when you morph something much smaller than your own body, the excess mass is extruded into zero space. It hangs there, a wad of randomly arranged matter, 
Or at least that was the theory. There was nothing random here. Because we were outside of normal three-dimensional space, I could see the insides of everything and everyone. But the bodies were still definitely human and andalite bodies. They were not just random globs. Once, some time ago, I explained to my human friends about excess mass being pushed into zero space. They asked whether some ship traveling through zero space might not hit these matter bubbles. I'd laughed. After all, the odds were... Well, obviously, it now seemed the odds were pretty good. The Andalite ship had come too close and had pulled us into its magnetic field. It was now dragging us in its wake as it blasted through Z-space. Aboard the Andalite ship! I cried with all the power I could still muster. Andalite ship! Andalite ship! We're trapped in your wake and dying! Help! Andalite ship! Help! The energy it took to cry out sapped my remaining strength. There was no air. I could literally see my own lungs collapsing inside me. I could see my hearts frantically beating, trying to keep me alive. But now the hearts were slowing. Slowing. Andalite ship! Help! Help! I cried. Help! I can't describe the pain of seeing my own fellow Andalites so close. The first Andalites I'd seen in so, so long. But of course, they couldn't see me. Inside the ship, they preserved normal three-dimensional space. The Andalites in the ship only saw bulkheads and decks about them. And then I literally saw, as though I was standing outside myself, the last beats of my heart. I saw the blood flow in my brain slow and stop. I knew I was going to die. I was going to die within sight of my own people. Die. My consciousness went dark. And then, suddenly, I wasn't dead. I wasn't spread out in multiple dimensions. I was in one piece, alive, and lying on my side, on a shaped table that adjusted gently to hold my tail and legs comfortably. What? I said for no particular reason. I don't think what is the question, an Andalite voice said. I think why and how, and especially who, are the questions. I turned my stock eyes, and there, standing beside me, were three Andalite warriors. Chapter 12 I am Eris Aximili Escarot Istil, I said. Prince Alfangor's little brother? One of the Andalites blurted. Yes, I am Alfangor's brother. I sighed a little at that. I know it's ridiculous, but as much as I loved and admired Alfangor, it did get annoying always being called Alfangor's little brother. They were three Andalite warriors. You could tell they were warriors by the way they carried themselves, by the way they managed to look totally straight and stiff, and yet had just a little bit of casual slouch in their hind legs. That plus the fact that each had a military-issue shredder weapon and extra power cells slung on a bandolier. I am Samalin Koroth Gahar, captain of this ship, the oldest of them said. My tactical officer, 
Harley Frodlin Cyrenial, and our ship's physician, Dr. Caldwin Ashul Tahalak. Now, what in Yaolin are you doing drifting around in zero space with five aliens? Did you save them? Are they safe? The aliens, I mean. Dr. Caldwin answered, Yes, they are quite well. But what unusual physiology? Four of them are clearly bipedal, but lack any sort of tail. They walk on two legs and manage to do so without having a tail for balance. Quite fascinating. The remaining aliens evidently designed for flight and... Yes, thank you, Doctor. Captain Semelin interrupted. The question for the Earths is what was he doing in zero space in the company of these... these fascinating aliens. I climbed to my feet. I felt shaky, but I couldn't just lie there. Captain, I was in morph, in a very small morph. Then I heard a popping sound, and suddenly I was in Z-space. What? You are the extruded mass from a low-mass morph? It's impossible! The doctor cried, his eyes bright with excitement. I mean, it's not impossible, perhaps, but it's never happened. This will annihilate every existing theory on morph mass displacement. This will be a scientific breakthrough of... Yes, no doubt. The captain interrupted again, sounding more testy. But as fascinating as it is scientifically, I have a bigger question. We know how you came to be floating in zero space, Earth's Aksamili. But how did these aliens arrive here, since only Andalites possess the morphing power? It was a direct question from a superior officer. A very superior officer. A ship's captain is lord and master of his ship. And Aruths is basically something a ship's captain might scrape off his hoof. Even though the captain's tone was very accusatory, I had this sudden urge to start laughing. It was sheer relief. First, because my friends were well. But also because I was back among Andalites. They looked like me. They spoke like me. They moved like me. I wanted to laugh and to be sad. Answer the captain's question! The tactical officer roared, speaking up for the first time. As the number two officer, tactical officers are the ship disciplinarians. Sorry, sir, I said. It's just that I haven't seen a fellow Andalite in a very long time, and I thought I might never that I might be stuck on Earth for the rest of my life. The T.O.'s fierce expression softened, but not much. The captain nodded and said, Just give me your report, Earths. But he said it nicely. Yes, captain. I have been marooned on Earth for approximately 0.7 standard Andalite years. I believe I am the only survivor following a battle between the dome ship where I served and a Yurk pool ship. The pool ship was assisted by a concealed blade ship belonging to Visser Three. The T.O. made a sneering, disgusted sound. The dome was separated prior to battle and... I was in the dome. It wasn't my choice. I was ordered to the dome. I felt foolish defending my actions, but I didn't want it to look like I was some kind of coward. Anyway, the dome fell from orbit and crashed into one of Earth's oceans. I was down there underwater for several Earth weeks, 
until the humans came to rescue me. The same humans who are now in sickbay? The doctor asked. Yes. They use some sort of human diving craft? The T.O. asked. No, they morphed into aquatic animals and rescued me. The captain showed no expression, except a wary tightening around his main eyes. They morphed? And where exactly did they acquire the ability to morph? This was going to be hard. Some time ago, I had managed to make contact with the Andalite Command. They had basically told me to take the blame for giving humans morphing ability. They didn't want to blacken Alfangor's reputation as a hero. Giving away morphing technology is a major crime. What should I say? Should I lie to the captain? It seemed impossible. But I had orders from much higher sources. I did, sir. I gave them morphing capability. The captain just looked at me. I see. You are not a good liar, Arthas Aximili. My hearts skipped a few beats. Sir? The T.O. sighed. You young fool. If you gave the morphing power to the humans, how did they manage to already be in morph the first time you saw them? Obviously, they were already capable of morphing by the time they discovered you. What could I say? I hadn't exactly had time to prepare a good story. I was supposed to be a mosquito a few billion miles away. Now I looked like a liar and an idiot. I said nothing. Just tried to stand at attention. Doctor, thank you, the captain said, dismissing the doctor. Perhaps you'd like to go check on your humans. See if you can't analyze this zero-space problem young Aximili has discovered. The doctor left. The captain leaned close. Orth's Aximili, I'd like to know why you're lying to me. I would never lie, unless... Unless what, you insignificant Orth's? The T.O. cried. You are addressing a ship's captain. I nodded. Yes, I know. The T.O. started to yell again, but the captain cut him short with a raised hand. Arths, have you at any time made contact with the home world during your time on Earth? Yes, Captain, I said, practically collapsing with relief. Captain Semelin got it. He understood. And you were given orders at that time? Yes, Captain. He looked as if he might ask more, but he didn't. He looked at me for a long time. Then, in a much gentler voice, he said, What happened to Alfangor? He was killed by Visser Three on the planet's surface. The captain nodded. The T.O. looked shocked. Prince Alfangor did this? The T.O. asked in an awed voice. Prince Alfangor broke the law of Ciro's kindness? That speculation will never leave this room, the captain said harshly. It was Earth's Aximili who foolishly gave the morphing power to the humans. But between us, I'll say this. I served under Prince Alfangor 
I was his T.O. at one time. And any time Alfangor did something, it was for a good reason. He looked right at me and said, Alfangor was my friend as well as my prince. I'll believe he broke the rules. I'll never believe he did wrong. Chapter 13 Hey, I have a question, Marco said, raising his hand and waving it around in the air with a sense of urgency. What question? I asked him. Where, 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 where are we? We are in the sickbay of the Andalite assault ship Ascalon. I tried not to sound too happy about that fact. I knew my human friends would be devastated at learning they were marooned far from Earth. Ascalon? Isn't Ascalon that new salad green? Rachel wondered. We have just come out of zero space and are now moving at top space normal speed toward planet Lyra. Lyra? Where the psychic frogs are from? Cassie asked. The creatures who the Yorks were going to use those mutated sharks on. Yes. As we already knew, the Yurks were having difficulties invading Lyra in their usual style. The Lyran psychic abilities made them able to detect the presence of a Yurk in another Lyran's head. The Yurks were going to alter hammerhead sharks to make them suitable for Yurk infestation, and then use those shark controllers as shock troops in the oceans of Lyra. But we busted up that plan back on Earth, Marco said impatiently. I was there, remember? I know this part. What I meant was, how did we end up here? One minute, I'm a mosquito, then, bam bam boom, I'm my cute, lovable self again. Only I'm looking up at some Andalite who's asking whether I've ever had a tail. I almost peed myself. I thought he was Visser 3. It seems our extruded mess was swept up in the wake of a passing ship. Everyone is very surprised and excited. We have made a scientific breakthrough. Oh, good. I feel better already, Rachel said, using a tone humans call sarcasm. So how do we get back? Prince Jake asked. No one knows. The doctor and the other scientists on board are working on the theory. There may be a snapback effect, but they don't know. And we are about to land on Lyra. This is an assault ship which means it carries a large number of surface attack crafts. It is no longer a secret Yurk invasion of Lyra. It has become a major open battle. They have four pull ships in orbit and two blade ships, hundreds of bug fighters. We have less than a third of their forces. So let me get this straight, Rachel said. Suddenly, we're a bazillion miles from home, and we're about to get dragged into a serious shooting war? where the good guys are outnumbered three to one? Yes, I said. Cool, Rachel said. What can we do to help? Oh, even for you, Rachel, that is just sick, Mirko said. You can do nothing, I said. I told you the Kafit bird morph that Visser 3 used is from my home planet. That means our side may be infiltrated by Yurks or their allies. We can't trust your secret to anyone. If you do get back to Earth somehow, you won't survive if the Yurks find out who you are. Cassie tilted her head and looked at me with a sad sort of smile.
If you get back to Earth? Meaning you won't be going back with us? I wish I hadn't used those words. My head was too full of problems and complications and every kind of emotion. I didn't really want to think about being separated from my human friends. Rachel looked disgruntled. I have news for you, Axe. If there's some yerk butt-kicking being done today, I'm in on it. We have to follow the captain's orders, I said. Says who? Marco asked. I was beginning to feel still more troubling emotions. Something bordering on panic now. And strangely enough, guilt. I am just a lowly arts, like a human cadet. I have to follow orders. I looked pleadingly at Prince Jake. You have to understand. You are no longer my prince, now that I am back among my own people. They all looked at me. It wasn't a nice look. Prince Jake tried not to seem bothered. But although I am no expert on human facial expressions, I believe my statement did cause him concern. Maybe you need to think about who your people are now. Tobias said in a private whisper that no one else heard. I am not you, Tobias. I'm not a nothlet. I'm not one species trapped in the body of another. No, but I don't think you're just a lowly arts anymore either. And whether you like it or not, you're one of us. I didn't answer him. He was wrong. Instead, I said, as gently as I could, the captain has ordered that... Until the situation is stable, you must all remain here, in this room. Please do not attempt to move about the ship. Chapter 14 The Ascalin raced, engines wide open, toward the planet Lyra. I watched from the bridge. For some reason, the captain had called me there and seemed to want to keep me close by. Maybe he was worried about me being too close to the humans. I don't know. I just know that an arts usually doesn't stay on the bridge. It was small, as battle bridges go. None of the wide open spaces of a dome ship bridge. There was good, hardy grass underfoot, though, and the latest in sensors and computers ringed the circular space, watched by half a dozen intensely focused warriors. It was an honor to be there. It was exciting. So why did I keep picturing my human friends sitting in the little room off the sickbay? A tall, holographic display shimmered in the middle of the room. It showed the planet and the ships in nearby space. York ships in red, our ships in blue. There was a lot more red than blue. By focusing my mind... I could see one of the new ThoughtSpeak displays. It transmits data directly to your brain. Very cutting edge, as Marco would say. I decided that I had no reason to feel guilty. I had been united with the humans when we were on Earth. That made sense. But now I was back among my own people. My true place was here. On the ThoughtSpeak display... I called up a detailed map of the situation on the ground. Planet Lyra was 92% covered by water. 8% land and a few scattered islands and one continent. 
the land battle would take place on the continent. Neither we nor the Yurks had much capability underwater where the Lyrans built their cities. I could see several Lyran cities, usually built within 40 or 50 miles of the continent or one of the islands. Whoever, Yurk or Andalite, ended up controlling the continent would effectively control the planet. What do you think of our tactical situation, Arths Aximili? The T.O. asked me. It startled me. He sounded almost friendly. I am not an expert on... I did not suppose you were. He snapped. I asked for an evaluation. Yes, sir. The Yurks are strong in orbit above the planet. I would say the odds favor them. But they don't want the battle to take place up here. Even if they beat us, they might be too badly damaged to be able to invade and hold the continent below from Lyran counterattack. I see. If they fear the Lyrans on the surface, why take the risk of engaging us and the Lyrans together on the surface? I was out of things to say. Of course, the T.O. was right. I must sound like an idiot. The T.O. turned one stock eye to look at me. Because, Arthas Atsumili, the Yurks understand that different species do not fight well together. We have one way of doing things. The Lyrans, a very different way. The Yurks are united under one command. We and the Lyrans are not. I noticed the captain looking thoughtfully at me and at his T.O. He seemed displeased. There is a lesson there, Arthas, the T.O. said. We Andalites are strongest when we fight alone. Yes, sir. I knew what he meant. He was talking about the humans. And I really should just keep quiet. And yet, with all due respect, it was my human friends and I who destroyed the Yurks' attempt to create a species of ocean-going shock troops for use here on Lyra. If the Yurks had succeeded in that plan, the situation here today would be impossible. The T.O. looked angry. I didn't regret having spoken up, but I was waiting for him to... Dracon Flashes! A warrior at a sensor station called out. We have Dracon Flashes at the north end of the continent. Now Shredder Flashes. The battle has begun. An instant later, a holographic Andalite head appeared in midair before us. Force Commander Prince Galu Enelon Escarth, the T.O. said. Attention! No one stood at attention except me. They all had things to do. You don't actually stand at attention if you're doing something. In a calm, thought-speak voice, the holographic head said, The action has begun on the continent. There are heavy Yurk forces. Carry out Plan 7-4. To our Lyran allies, may your great god, Cha Ma Meeb, smile on you this day. And to all Andalite warriors, the people expect that every warrior shall do his duty. The Escalon de-accelerated, slowing as it dropped into the thick, humid atmosphere of Lyra. Sir, what is my battle station? I asked the T.O. He laughed the grim laugh of a warrior going into battle. For the bold arts who made all this possible? You'd better stick with me. He and the captain exchanged a glance and a laugh. 
I didn't know whether to be embarrassed or proud. Mostly, I was just scared. The continent loomed larger and larger. Most of it was lush and green, primarily jungle. Green like Earth's forest and jungles, but with wide swaths of some brilliant yellow vegetation too. The north end of the continent was less fertile, more barren, probably colder. It was in one valley there that the battle was underway. Visual, the captain ordered. Magnification optimum. The hologram that had showed space now switched to a startlingly real picture of the valley. I could see Yurk forces, mostly hork bajir with a reserve of taxons and a scattering of geds, dug in on high ground above the west rim of the valley. They had erected massive force fields covering their back, thus forcing our forces and the Lyrans to come at them head-on. Our ground skirmishers were racing across rock and through scattered trees, firing and being fired upon. A force of Lyrans was on foot, scrabbling over the rocks, almost unprotected to assault the Yurks. You see why the Yurks chose to fight here? Captain Semelin said. As the T.O. was saying, different species under different commands cannot function well together. You see, we waste our forces protecting the Lyrans from being mowed down. As a result, we are weak. The Ascalon will turn that around, the T.O. said confidently. Landing approach, a warrior called out. Then, Captain! Malfunction in the ground approach guidance system. The captain looked perfectly calm. The T.O. swung his face toward the warrior who had spoken. What? He roared. Sir, the controls are frozen. I've been locked out. Attempting to override. Override failing. The T.O. leapt to the console. His fingers flew across the fields and resonators. I saw his concentration as he made the mind link with the system. Then, with absolute horror on his face, he turned to the captain. Captain, we are on approach to land behind your lines. We won't have a prayer. The captain walked calmly over to his T.O. and then... Whap! The captain whipped his tail blade like lightning. The blade hit the T.O. at the base of his tail. T.O. Horelli's tail fell to the deck and twitched. Every warrior on the bridge froze staring at the impossible sight. The captain drew his shredder and fired. Warriors fell to the deck, stunned unconscious. The air crackled with heat. Static electricity sizzled and danced in blue flame across bodies and equipment alike. Only the bleating, horrified T.O. was left conscious. A deliberate insult. He was no longer dangerous. Ah, my good arts, the captain said, holding the shredder on me and taking the T.O. shredder. I don't want to take the chance of injuring you. Visser 4 would be very upset if I injured the creatures who have been causing Visser 3 such trouble on Earth. Vissers 3 and 4 are such close friends. Just remain calm. It will all be over in a moment, and you will all be 
guests of the Yurk Empire. Chapter 15 I stood there like my hooves had been nailed to the deck. It wasn't possible. An Andalite ship's captain? A traitor? Or was he a controller? No one moved. The computer guided the Ascalon down, down to sweep slowly forward, just a few hundred feet above the rocky ground. In seconds, we'd be down. T.O. Harlan was bleeding profusely from his severed tail, but I knew he would rather die than live without a tail. The humans! It hit me like a Dracon beam blast. My human friends were back in the sick bay. The captain knew their secret. In a matter of seconds, so would the entire York Empire. The news would flash to Visser 3. There would be no going home for them. Ever. And Earth, like Lyra, would fall to the Yurks. Prince Jake! Tobias! Cassie! Marco! Rachel! I cried in private thought speak. If one of you can hear me, you must escape. The captain is... The captain is a dirtbag. Mirko's thought-speak voice said, startlingly clear and close. What? Where are you? Oh, gee, Axe. We decided not to sit in our room with our hands folded like good little girls and boys. Rachel said. Sorry. Axe, we are on the bridge. Prince Jake said. We saw what happened. Or saw as well as we can in these morphs. Prince Jake, it is absolutely vital that Captain Semelin be stopped. We can't take him out, Cassie said. We would demorph too slowly, but I happen to be on the captain, and I can definitely distract him. The Ascalon was settling toward the ground. Through the front viewport, I saw row after row of hork all with weapons drawn, totally surrounding the landing area. Do it, Cassie, I said grimly. Distract him, and I will do the rest. We have just seconds. I stared, riveted, as a flea too small to be seen became a flea too large to be ignored. It grew on the captain's back, larger, larger, with twisting, morphing features. What is... The captain yelled in surprise. Thwap! I struck. My tailblade whipped forward, aimed for Semelin's neck. He jerked back, dodged. My blade hit his upper right front leg, a glancing blow. All around the room, flies and cockroaches no one had noticed began to grow as my human friends demorphed. But now the captain swept his shredder toward me, and I struck again. Whap! The weapon flew from his hand and skittered across the deck. It was the captain and I, tail to tail. We faced each other each quivering with energy and focus, each waiting for the opening that would allow us to swing the killing tail slash. I flushed on the scene with Visser 3. This was the second time I had gone tail to tail with an enemy. This time, my foe would not escape. T.O. Harolin! He had snatched up the fallen shredder and fired. The captain sizzled, looked horrified, then disappeared. Computer! The T.O. yelled. Emergency override! Switch controls to manual! Wham! Too late! The Ascalon hit the ground hard. I was thrown off my hooves. 
my human friends, all back in their own bodies now, went rolling and tumbling. Only the T.O. managed to stay on his feet. Computer, emergency liftoff! Unable to comply. The disembodied voice said. There is severe main engine damage. I saw Harolin rock back on his hooves at the news. Humans, remorph! The only way out of here is to be invisible! Arths, you too! I'm not running away! Yes, you are, Arths, Aximili, Escarth, Islil! You and the humans will escape and get word of this evil to the commander! That is an order! But... Do you know how to take an order? He roared. Yes, sir! Morph something small! I'll blow you out of the emergency hatch! Get as far from the Ascalon as you can! You won't have much time! Do you hear me? I knew then what he was going to do. I knew he had no choice. He could not allow himself to be taken by the Yurks. He could not allow any of the Andalites on board to be taken alive. And there was simply no way to escape this trap. Prince Jake, we all have to morph small. Um, um, flies! Morph to flies! And fly up to the ceiling of the bridge! There's an escape hatch! I noticed Rachel looking at me with total disdain. Then she looked to Prince Jake. What do we do? What he said, Prince Jake said. Do it. I focused my own mind on the fly morph. I expected T.O. Harolin's face to reveal surprise or horror as I began to undergo the changes. After all, flies are pretty horrific, even by Earth standards. But the T.O. wasn't interested. He was staggering now from the loss of blood, and he was making an announcement that would be transmitted throughout the ship. To all warriors and crew of the Ascalon, this is the tactical officer. The captain is dead. We are surrounded. No chance of escape. Nothing to do now but inflict the maximum damage on the Yurks. In three minutes, I will begin firing all ship's weapons. The Shredder flashback will cause the ship to explode. He let this sink in for a moment. Perform the ritual of death, my friends. Thank you for your service to this ship. You die in the service of the people, defending freedom. I was shrinking rapidly. The deck was rushing up toward me. Insect legs and insect antennae sprouted from me. But I was Andalite, at one with every Andalite on the ship. From all over the ship, a hundred Thoughtspeak voices spoke the words of the ritual. I couldn't help but join them. I am the servant of the people, I said. I should have bowed my head, but I no longer had a head that could bow. I am the servant of my prince. All over the ship, I knew my fellow Endolites were raising their stock eyes upward. I am the servant of honor, I said, and heard the echo of all those strong voices. My life is not my own when the people have need of it. My life is given for the people, for my prince, and for my honor. I fired the fly's legs, starting the wings beating, and flew up toward the escape hatch. I have never felt worse than I did at that moment. So many would die, and I would live. Arths, the T.O. said weakly. Yes. Maybe I was wrong.
Maybe different races can be stronger together. Go with your humans and prove me wrong. The escape hatch blew open before I could answer. A powerful rush of escaping air launched me out into the Lyran dusk. Jake! Prince Jake! I said. We must get as far away as we can. We flew, rolling and tumbling through the air, riding the strong breeze wherever it took us. When the Ascalon blew itself up, we were safe from the blast. And safe too from the thought-speak cries of a hundred dying heroes. Chapter 16 Okay, now what? Rachel said. I didn't have an answer. I couldn't think. I just kept turning it over and over in my mind. An Andalite ship's captain had turned traitor. It was impossible. Because the more I thought about it, the more I realized he could not have been a controller. The Ascalon had been in space for weeks. In order for a Yurk parasite to have lived in Captain Semelon's brain, it would have had to have Kendrona rays. There was no way for even the captain to conceal a portable Kendrona aboard the ship. I said, now what? Rachel repeated. I don't know, I said. Well, if you don't, who does? She demanded. What are we going to do? Fly around looking for the nearest dumpster? So we can see if there's a tasty pile of rotting fruit? Come on, we need a plan. I... I... I don't know what to do. We need to find a way home, Marco said. Obviously, thanks to Captain Benedict Arnold back there, this whole war is going bad on us. I didn't think the almighty Andalites did things like that. I thought it was just us poor, dumb, primitive humans who'd sell out to the bad guys. How about everyone getting off Axe's back? Tobias said. Yeah, poor Axe, Rachel sneered. He throws us over in a flash for his big deal captain who, oops, turns out to be a traitor. Rachel, I don't think that's really fair, Cassie argued. Fair? Fair? Marco yelled. If it wasn't for us totally ignoring Axe and his precious captain, Axe would be dead back there with... I wish I were! I cried. I wish I were back there with them! I wish I had died with them! I had not intended to say that. And I did not mean it. Not really. I wanted to live. I felt terrible about it. But I wanted to live. Okay, everyone shut up! Prince Jake said at last. That was rough, what happened back there. A lot of good guys just died. Everyone is hyped up. So let's just chill. He waited a few moments before going on. Here's what we do. We keep flying till we're near the two-hour limit. We won't get far in these bodies, even with this breeze. But we want as much distance as we can get. We flew in silence, seeing the strange planet through the distorted compound eyes of flies, hearing almost nothing, smelling things we could not identify. We were alone in silence with our thoughts. And after a while, I almost wished the yelling and accusations would start again. It's a terrible thing, living when so many others have died. It's terrible because no matter what you do, a single thought keeps popping up in your head. I'm glad it wasn't me. I was glad it wasn't me. 
We landed amid a tumble of rocks that would hide us from view. We demorphed. From what I could recall of the display on board the Ascalon, we were in a no-person's land between the Yurk and Endolite forces. The battle could sweep over us at any moment. Okay, I'm calm now, Rachel said as soon as she had emerged from the fly morph. So now that I'm calm, same question. Now what? What do you think about having Tobias take a look around? Prince Jake asked me. I don't know, I said. Prince Jake looked at me with a narrowing of the eyes and pressing together of the lips. The expression is annoyance, I believe. Tobias, go up and take a quick look, Prince Jake said. Tobias flapped up from the ground. Prince Jake looked at me. Now listen up, Axe. I know you're feeling bad. For lots of reasons, probably. But you feeling bad doesn't let you off the hook. What hook? Look, we got Andalite shooting at Yerks. We have no humans in this fight except for us. Maybe you're not the big expert, but you know more than we know. So snap out of it. Tobias circled overhead and came quickly back down to land somewhat painfully on a point of rock. We have about a thousand heavily armed Hork-Bajir on one side, coming toward us fast. They're backed up by these kind of big, flat, oval ships, flying maybe a quarter mile up and firing Dracon beams. Taxon's coming behind them. And over there, we have about two dozen Andalite ships, also low down, and maybe a hundred tough-looking Andalites on the ground. I may be wrong, but I don't think the good guys are going to win this round. We should try and reach the Andalite forces, I said. Why? So some other Andalite trader can rat us out? Rachel said harshly. My tail blade was at her throat before I knew it. She stared at me with cool, blue, human eyes. What's the matter, Axe? Does the truth hurt? You blew us off so you could suck up to Captain Creep back there. If we go and find more Andalites, what happens? You tell us to go sit in a corner and be nice, while you start yes-sirring and no-sirring the next Andalite you see? I pulled my tailblade back, horrified that I'd gotten so emotional. I felt the anger drain away. Rachel was right. I made a mistake trusting Captain Semelin. I made a mistake dismissing all of you. You have... You have kept me alive and befriended me for a long time. All I can say is none of you knows what it's like to be completely cut off from your own people. One of us does, Tobias said quietly. All I can say is I'm sorry, and I will consider Jake my prince until he says otherwise. I turned to face Prince Jake, focusing all my eyes on him. You are my prince until you, and only you, say otherwise. For once, he did not say, Don't call me prince. Instead, he said, Fine. Now what I want to know is this. Is there anyone on the Andalite side we can be totally sure of? It was a hurtful question. I felt the last of my pride melting away. The commander. If he were a Yurk spy, this entire battle would already be lost. It looks pretty lost to me, Marco said bluntly. Force Commander Prince Galu Anilan Eskarov lost his entire family to a Yurk raid on an Andalite outpost. His entire family, wife and three children, they died rather than be captured. Their bodies were fed to the taxons. We can trust Prince Galu. I sighed. 
And we probably should trust no one else. Chapter 17 It sounded simple. Reach the Endolite forces. But it is a very dangerous thing, advancing toward a lot of angry, very dangerous, very heavily armed, very nervous warriors. The automated defense grid will fire at anything in the air that comes too close, I warned. Anything. If it is more than a few feet above the ground, the sensors will pick it up, target it, and fire. This ground is too rough to walk over, Cassie said thoughtfully. And it's getting dark. We could try smaller birds. The seagull morphs again. No, wait! Bats! Not as fast, but very agile. And with echolocation, we can fly close to the ground even in the dark. To the bat morph, Robin! Mirko said with cheerfulness that seemed totally out of place. We morph. Then we fly, hugging the ground the whole way, Jake said. Once behind Endolite lines, we try and figure out a way to reach this Prince Galu. He looked at me. And whatever happens, we stay out of this battle till we reach Galu. Understood? Yes, Prince Jake. Prince Jake looked at me with an unsmiling mouth. Then he said, Don't call me Prince. And formed a small smile with his mouth parts. Yes, Prince Jake, I said. I had been in Batmorph before, and after doing Mosquito and Flymorphs, it seemed almost normal. It has fur, for one thing, and I find fur very comforting, even when it is dark brown and very different from my own blue. But bats are almost useless on the ground. Bat legs are stunted and clumsy, and their front legs, or arms, whatever, are encumbered by leathery wings. Being unable to run is disturbing for any Andalite. I focused on the bat, this strange creature from a strange planet so far away. I shrank down and down as if I were falling, as if I might fall into one of the thousands of bubbles in the volcanic rock beneath me. My front legs withered and left me almost face down on the rock. My tail blade crinkled like a burning leaf. The crinkling withering worked its way up my tail. I couldn't help but picture the tactical officer in those horrible moments after the captain had struck and cut away his tail. I hadn't liked T.O. Harlan. He seemed to me like too many older officers, full of prejudices and arrogance. But he had been a true Andalite. He had died a hero. Now my hind legs began to shrink, staying perfectly symmetrical till they were quite small. Then, at the last moment, tiny claws replaced the hooves. My arms moved back, rotating a few degrees around my body. My fingers elongated relative to the rest of the arm, which was shrinking. Skin began to grow in loose, gray, then black folds. It hung down from my arms as if I were wearing very loose, human clothing. Clothing is pliable fabric designed to cover the human body, sometimes as protection against the cold, but mostly, as I understand it, because humans believe much of their body to be unacceptable. They are right, of course, but they cover all the wrong parts. There is nothing uglier than a human nose. 
The loose hanging skin tightened and became wings. My ears grew larger. And, of course, like almost all earth creatures, I acquired a mouth. I could see quite well. Not as well as a bird of prey, but almost as well as a human. But sight is not the special power of bats. The special power bats have is the ability to fire a series of ultrasonic sounds that bounce off solid objects and send back a sonic picture to the bats. The Liren sun was dropping fast. The bat eyes were already straining to see, but I had a perfectly clear picture of the rocks around me. Okay, let's go find this Andalite honcho, Marco said. I flopped my wings and flew, once more in the company of my human friends. I felt strangely at home, as though, despite Prince Jake's anger and Marco's sneering and Rachel's outright suspicion, I belonged with them. For some reason, at that moment, even with the images of death aboard the Ascalon fresh in my mind, I saw myself far away in a very different body, eating delicious cinnamon buns with a mouth. I wanted to be back there. I wanted to be back on Earth. Captain Semelin had sold out to the Yurks. Was I selling out to the humans? Chapter 18 I flopped my leathery wings and fired my echolocation bursts and flew just inches above the rocks. The bat's echolocation sense created a sort of picture, like a sketchy line drawing with edges all sharp and clear and surfaces just sort of scribbled in. I dived between rocks and rose just millimeters before hitting obstructions. I turned left, right, left, in sudden acrobatic jerks. This is insane! Marco yelled. Insane can mean several things when used by Marco. It can mean stupid, or it can mean fun. I think in this case it meant fun, because as insane as it was, it was exhilarating. Yeehaw! Rachel yelled, then laughed her feral, dangerous laugh. Soon it was a sort of precarious game. How close could I fly to the jagged rock edges without ripping a wing or crushing my fragile bat bones in an impact? And it took my mind off darker, muddier thoughts. Then the exquisitely sensitive bat ears, the ears that could hear the echoes of hypersonic echolocation, heard something new. A hum. A vast, pulsating hum that grew and grew as we flew on. Prince Jake, I believe we are hearing the Andalite sensors, I said. Oh, is that what that is? Cassie remarked. Almost like music. We flew on, low, occasionally scraping on jutting rocks. Then... Whoa! Pull up! Pull up! Cassie cried. She was in the lead. I shot upward. The blast of dragon beams and shutters was deafening. The flashes were blunting to the bat's eyes. Hork Bajir, twenty at least, were piling up against a group of three Andalites and two Lyrans. The fighting was intense. It would be over in a few minutes. It would be a slaughter. 
but Prince Jake had ordered us to stay out of it, and I would not abandon him and my human friends again. And yet, a phalanx of taxons was moving in to finish off the wounded Andalites, who had already fallen. To my surprise, it was Cassie who said, Jake, we should do something. Didn't I say we had to stay out of the battles? Prince Jake demanded. Yeah, that's what you said. Tobias answered. So what are we really going to do? Prince Jake hesitated. Then he said, Okay, let's rescue them. Land, demorph, remorph, fast, fast, fast. But before we could land, the entire rock bowl where the Andalites and Liren stood exploded. Kaboom! The shockwave sent me spinning through the air. I landed on my back, half unconscious, deafened, blood in my eyes. And overhead, the Yurk ground attack fighter swept by to the hoarse cheering of the hork bajir A huge clawed foot landed inches from me. hork bajir ran over me, stampeding in a forward rush, ignoring the tiny winged creature that was me. They fired their Jacon beams steadily, yelling with triumph in their voices. I heard no answering Andalite shredders. The Yurk forces were advancing. The Andalite line was broken. Prince Jake, I called. Tobias! Get in the air! Prince Jake yelled back to all of us. Everyone who can fly, up! Get up! Could I fly? Yes! I rose from the ground just as the first wave of taxons came rushing forward. Taxons are huge, long worms, like earth centipedes, only much larger. Taxons live in a state of eternal hunger. Desperate hunger. They will eat anything, dead or alive. Even their own fallen or injured brothers. I fluttered past an open, questing taxon mouth. I saw a fellow bat flying just a few feet above me. I saw it very clearly. And then, in an instant, it was gone. Simply gone. Where's Tobias? Rachel cried. Tobias! I cried. He... he disappeared. What do you mean he disappeared? Prince Jake demanded. I saw him. I was watching him. And he just disappeared. Now, twenty feet up, I could see more of the battlefield. The line of hork was already far ahead of us. Taxons writhed across the dark landscape below. If there were any Andalites anywhere nearby, they had been destroyed. In my mind, I pictured the tactical display aboard the Ascalon. I could see where we were and where the forces had been arrayed. We've lost, I whispered, not sure if anyone even heard me. We've lost. As if to confirm my grim realization, I saw the engine flares of a dozen or more distant Andalite ships rising from the surface of planet Lyra, rising and running for their lives. Chapter 19 We stood, in our own bodies, amid the filthy, reeking waste the Texans had left behind. We hadn't found Tobias. Rachel was alternating crying and raging. Marco was sitting silent. Cassie was holding on to Prince Jake. 
and Prince Jake kept pulling away to pace, to mutter to himself, to wonder half aloud what he should have done, what he could have done. I stood off by myself. I couldn't help feeling that I was to blame. I was humiliated. I felt sick. I had turned away from my friends and trusted my own people instead. One of my own people had betrayed us. And the rest of my people. Well, they had probably fought well and bravely, but they had lost. Just like the hork War, we had lost again and condemned another race to slavery under the Yerks. And what a race! The Lyrans were amphibians. They could travel in water or on land, although they built their cities underwater. But the terrifying thing was that the Lyrans possessed limited, but very real, psychic powers. Lyran controllers would be able to see past morphs and into the mind inside. It would be impossible to fool them for long. And if Lyran controllers were ever brought to Earth, their powers would soon reveal the truth of the Animorphs. Not that the Animorphs would ever likely be able to return to Earth. It was Cassie who shook me out of my dark thoughts. In a whisper, she said, Axe, I don't think Jake wants to have to ask you again, but what do you think we should do? I don't know. We've lost. We're on a strange planet that will soon be under Yurk domination. We failed the Lyrans as we failed the hork as we are failing the humans. Past Cassie's head, I saw distant red flares from Yurk ships dropping from orbit to land more and more troops on the continent. Soon the continent would be an impregnable garrison of Yurk forces. Tell me more about the Lyrans, Cassie said. I shrugged. I don't really know any more than you know. They are amphibians. They live primarily in the oceans. Originally, I suppose they came on land to lay their eggs. Now, I suppose their technology allows them to do all that in their underwater cities. So why do they even care about what happens on the land? They wouldn't care. Except that the Yurks can use the continent as a base for attacks against the underwater cities. Other than that, I don't suppose the Lyrans would even... Care... What? I stopped breathing. Yes. Of course. Of course that would be Galu's plan. What? What is it? Cassie demanded sharply. Prince Jake! I cried. Yeah. We must reach the ocean. If I am right, some Andalites will be in the Lyran cities. In any case, we must get to the sea as quickly as possible. Why? I hesitated. Prince Jake! Jake! You must trust me. We cannot stay on land. We have to reach the water. Prince Jake looked at me for a long time. Okay, he said at last. I trust you. One more thing, I said. If at any time it seems the Yurks may catch us, if it seems they may take me alive, you must not let them. You must destroy me yourself rather than let them take me. Promise me. What? Why? Because I think I know what is going to happen. And if I am right, this defeat will become the greatest victory in Andalite history. And that information cannot fall into the hands of the Yurks. No matter the price. No matter what. Chapter 20 
The continent was small by continent standards, but it still took the rest of the night to reach the shore. We morphed birds and flew. We stopped when we were near the two-hour limit and rested. And all the while, I wondered if there was enough time left. We flew above scenes of recent carnage. Burned-out ground skimmers, crumpled andalite fighters, and yerk bug fighters. As the sun rose on Lyra, I looked down and saw a still-smoldering andalite ground attack ship crumpled into a yerk ship. They had hit so hard that you couldn't tell where one left off and the other began. And then, finally, there was the sea. It stretched forever, brilliant blue, far more vivid and bright than the oceans of Earth, which are usually gray. I tried to look around and spot some landmark, some outline of coastline that would seem familiar from my faint memory of the holographic maps. But it was just endless miles of mutty shallows, overgrown with rushes and reeds and strange yellow trees that swirled horizontally. Big ocean, Rachel said. How do we... How do we what? Prince Jake asked. It took several seconds for us to notice. To realize, Rachel was gone. Rachel! Cassie cried. Rachel! We searched the sky. Nothing. Not even our powerful raptor eyes could see anything. No clue. No sign. Nothing. What's happening? Marco demanded, angry because he was afraid. She was just here. She was talking. Axe, what is this? Prince Jake asked. First Tobias, now Rachel. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe someone on the ground shot her. Cassie moaned. Oh God, Rachel! Rachel! There was no Dracon Flash, I said. Nothing. One second she was there. The next second she was gone. Maybe it was someone or something on the ground, Prince Jake said. We have to get out of here, into the water. We dove from the sky. I knew no one had fired at us, but I dove as fast as the humans. Whatever was making my friends disappear, it scared me. Whatever it was, I didn't want to be in its sights. Down we dove, wings back. Splash! I went under, plowing into the warm water. I instantly began to demorph. I bobbed to the surface, already more endolite than hairier. The water saturated my feathers, but the feathers were disappearing. I sucked air in through a nasty hole that was part beak and part endolite nose. I dove under again and finished demorphing. I surfaced and found Prince Jake, Cassie, and Marco, all treading water, finishing their own demorphing. Dolphin morph, Prince Jake said. Ox, you'll have to morph your tiger shark. Wait, no, Cassie said. We don't know what's in this ocean, but the Yurks thought hammerhead sharks would be the baddest things around, right? That's why they wanted to create shark controllers to fight in this ocean. We should all go shark. Yeah, good point, Jake agreed. Okay then, let's go shark. And everyone, watch everyone else. We've had two people disappear. We're not going to have a third. Shark, I thought, and began to perform the morph. 
I should explain the earth creatures called sharks. They are fish. They breathe by extracting oxygen from the water itself using thin membranes called gills. But there are many fish in Earth's oceans. Only a few are called sharks. Some sharks are pleasant, peaceful eaters of plankton. Others are small and prey only on smaller fish. But there are some sharks that humans call man-eaters. These sharks are swimming, killing machines. If it is possible to imagine a yerk having its own natural body, a body perfectly adapted for the yerk's ruthlessness and destructiveness, the shark would be that body. It has massively powerful jaws, lined with razor-sharp teeth. It has skin that is literally covered in millions of very tiny teeth. Skin that can rip human flesh. And it has an array of senses, each attuned to one thing. Finding prey. Finding and killing. Excellent eyesight. Excellent sense of smell that can detect a handful of blood molecules diluted in a billion gallons of salt water. An electrical field sensor that feels the energy of other living creatures. If some scientist had sat down to design the ultimate seagoing predator, the ultimate seagoing biological weapon, and they had come up with the hammerhead shark, he'd be very proud of his work. I felt myself morphing the shark, felt the scythe-like dorsal fins growing from my spine, felt my tail blade split and become the swept-back, skin-slicing tail, felt my stalked eyes move out to the sides and become the ugly hammer's head, felt the new senses come alive in my brain, felt the teeth, the rows of serrated, triangular, flesh-ripping, bone-crunching teeth, and I felt the shark's cold, clear, brutally-focused mind join my own. I kicked my tail and moved through the water. Jake, Cassie, and Marco swam beside me. I suppose, like me, they felt powerful at that moment. And it would have felt more powerful still, except for one terrible reality. There should have been six of us. And now, only four sharks swam out into the Lyran Ocean. Chapter 21 I wish Rachel and Tobias were seeing this, Cassie said. Her thought-speak voice was a mix of wonder and bitterness. This is nothing like Earth's oceans. It was true. The continent might have been a dull, uninteresting place, but the ocean was amazing. Earth's seas contain many fascinating and wonderful creatures, but most of what you see as you swim there is murky water and a sandy bottom. In this ocean, the water was clear as air. Clearer, in fact, than Lyran air, which is so heavy with humidity, it sometimes seems like you're breathing clouds. The water was perfectly, utterly clear. We were swimming in water that was 40 feet deep, and we could see every detail on the ocean floor. And what detail? Huge, billowing creatures like white and yellow sails, triangular with biological propellers at each corner. Brilliant electric blue worms or snakes, each 70 feet long, swimming in wild schools. A bizarre creature that rose and fell through the water by blowing air into a blotter so thin it was almost transparent. A wonderful sort of fish in the shape of a screw that rotated its way through the water. And these creatures weren't scattered here and there, but everywhere. The Lyran Ocean was a madhouse of life forms. 
spread around the ocean were bubbling chimneys of rock and soil, encrusted with squirming, writhing creatures, small and less small. My shark senses could feel the electrical discharge from these chimneys, and the intense warmth. As I watched, a massive school of the brilliant blue worms came swirling around one of the chimneys. It swirled, and my shark senses could feel the energy flowing from the chimney into the worms. Look at that! Cassie cried, excitement overcoming her sadness. A thousand marine biologists could stay happy for a thousand years just studying this one small area. The animals, the plants, the... the whatevers. I wish I knew more. I know this friend of my mom's who studies the ecology of coral reefs. She would cut off her arm to spend an hour here. The creatures are feeding off the geothermal energy and electrical charge from these chimneys, I said. This may be an environment without predators. It has predators, Marco said darkly. The yurts are here, and we're here, for now, until suddenly we go poof like Rachel and Tobias. That brought us all back to reality. Still, even afraid, even sad, even desperate, we could not ignore the wild, incredible scene all around us. We glided, dark and deadly, through a peaceful sea. The Yerks had been clever to consider using sharks to control this ocean. Wherever I looked, I saw no razor teeth, no crushing jaws. Marco was right. There were predators here, but they were us. And then... Hey, aren't those Lyrans? Prince Jake said. Down and to the left. I looked. Yes, they looked like the one Lyran we had seen on Earth in the company of Visser One. They were mostly yellow. They had skin that was slimy, as if covered with ooze, yet rough in texture like gravel. They had large webbed back feet. For arms, they had four tentacles arrayed around their plump, barrel-shaped bodies. The head was quite large, with a bulge at the back. It sat right on the shoulders. There was no neck. The face bulged outward and seemed to have just two features. A huge, wide, almost ridiculous mouth, and big, bulging eyes of a green that seemed almost to be lit from inside. There were four Lyrans. They were riding on water jets. The water jets were long, narrow tubes, flared in front to make a sort of wing, flared again in back to give extra maneuverability. Arrayed along the back wing were clusters of very narrow tubes pointed forward. They had obviously spotted us and were coming toward us. Probably wondering what we are, Cassie said cautiously. They've never seen sharks. These are the good guys, right? Murko said. I mean, these are the guys everyone's trying to save from the yurks. Yes, maybe we should contact them. They could lead us to the nearest Lyran city. Do it, Prince Jake said. Lyrans, I yelled. Lyrans, I am an Andalite in Morph. Chowoomp! The spear flew through the water, only slightly slower than a human bullet. I jerked left. Too late! The spear pierced my tail and kept on flying. Hey! Marco yelled. I'm an Andalite! Andalite! 
I cried. Your friend! Your ally! Octamili Escarth Istel and three humans from planet Earth. Not our allies. A cold, thought-speak voice said. He laughed. You have no secrets from these psychic Lyran minds. And suddenly the water boiled with the firing of a dozen spheres. Chawoomp! Chawoomp! This time we were more prepared. Still, we were not fast enough. A spear hit me in the side and stuck. Prince Jake avoided being hit, but Cassie was speared through and through. Marco was hit twice. Shark blood billowed. The Lyran controller laughed. Die, Andalite! Die, humans! We'll carry your bodies to Visor 4! Hey, great war! You can't tell who's on what side! Marco yelled. What is this, Vietnam? Three of us had been hit, but none of us was dead. The spears were fast, but very thin. No doubt they were deadly to Lyrans or to other creatures of this gentle ocean. But we were only hurt, not disabled. We don't seem to be dead just yet, I said to the Lyran controllers. The Lyran controllers gaped with their big green eyes. But, but the Harujin spears are deadly, one of the Lyrans said. He sounded like he was pouting. Nah, maybe around here they're deadly, Prince Jake said. But we're from a much tougher neighborhood. Think it's true what they say about frogs? Marco asked. Think it's true that they taste like chicken? Chapter 22 We launched toward the Lyran controllers. Sharks are very fast in short bursts. Too fast for the shocked yurks inside the Lyrans to react. They tried to turn their water jets around. They were still trying when they were hit by four frustrated, scared, angry people in shark morph. Andalites understand about tail fighting, but there is something very intimate and intimately violent about attacking with a mouth. You have to get very close. You smell and feel and touch your enemy. We hit, mouths open. We hit, and in a flash, the four Lyran controllers were off their water jets and trying to swim away. They kicked their big hind legs, but they were too slow. Using their psychic powers, they could feel our anger. It must have been terrible for them. It must have been terrifying. I didn't care. But then, I was rocked by a powerful psychic vision. A vision that cried out in despair and agony and desperate hope. One of the Lyrans had managed to squeeze out this plea for help. The Yurk in his head was busy trying to stay alive and the real Lyran had seized the moment to send this vision. The picture that appeared in my head was grisly and awful, but I knew it was real. Prince Jake, bite their heads! Bite off the large lobe at the back! What? Cassie cried. They're beaten already! I'm not going to kill them! I lunged for the nearest Lyran controller. The yerk in his head knew what I was doing. But when he tried to jerk aside, I slapped him with my tail, stunning him. I opened my mouth, then bit down hard on the lobe at the back of his head. But what was most shocking to see was the yerk itself. 
It was ripped from the Lyran's head. The Yurk writhed, helpless, in the seawater. The Yurks are positioned in their rear brain lobes, I said. Bite them off. It will kill the Lyrans, Cassie said. No, a strange voice said. It will free us. It was four against the three remaining Lyrans. It was short but brutal work. Four doomed Yurks writhed fatally out of place in the Lyran water. Thank you. The Lyran said. It wasn't normal thought-speak. It was deeper than that. Images, ideas that appeared in our minds, that we then translated into words. You need medical help, Cassie said. Maybe I could demorph in. No, we will be fine. We can regenerate most body parts. It will take some time and we will be weak, but there are caves nearby where we can rest and be safe. Thank you. Thank you! I've experienced some strange events, but four bright yellow Lyrans with half their heads removed actually thanking us was definitely one of the strangest. We need to reach the nearest Lyran city, Prince Jake said. Which way is it? It will be very difficult. In the last months, the Yurks have captured many of us and forced us to be controllers. There will be many like us between here and the City of Worms. You are powerful, but if even one Lyran controller encounters you and then escapes, your secret will be discovered. So how do we get there? Prince Jake wondered aloud. Morph the Lyrans, I said. Yes! The Lyrans cried. Yes, morph us! Take our water jets! As long as you stay away from other Lyrans, you will be safe from psychic probing. Cassie said, We don't like to... Yes! A Lyran responded, reading her thoughts. You do not like to morph sentient creatures. You respect our freedom. But we offer you this freely. We have read what is in the mind of Aximili the Endolite. We know what he suspects, and we know that even among the Endolites, there are traitors. So, friends, carry our DNA and help free our people from the Yurks. We rose to the surface. I demorphed. The humans demorphed. We lay there, treading water, rising and falling on the gentle Lyran swells. The Lyran sun was still low on the horizon, coming up on another day. It turned the water golden around us. I reached and pressed my hand against a Lyran's slimy yellow flesh. Where sky meets sea, Endolite, human, and Lyran are joined as allies, my Lyran said. Each with our weaknesses, each with our strengths. It moved me somehow, as ludicrous as it might have looked to an outsider. Humans and Endolite wallowing clumsily beside these big, yellow, psychic frogs, as Marco called them. Three species in a world conquered by the Yurks. We probably would have seemed pathetic to any Yurk who happened to see us. A fellow Andalite told me we were weak because we are not united. We do not speak with one voice, I said. But this union does not feel weak. Free people who get together to defend freedom are never weak. It was Marco who said that. Maybe you can see why, despite all their strangeness, 
I like humans. And I was starting to like Lyrans. We let the Lyrans go their own way to their underwater caves to recover from their injuries. And we began what might be the most bizarre morph any of us have ever done. The physical part was strange, but no more disturbing than any number of earth creatures I've morphed. The powerful webbed feet in back, the four sinuous tentacles, the necklace head were almost ordinary compared to the body of a fly or a cockroach. It was the new sense that was stunning. The psychic sense. It wasn't that I could read every thought in the heads of Prince Jake and Cassie and Marco, but I could feel enough of their secrets to be embarrassed for them. And, of course, for myself. Because my own secrets, my vain little ideas, my pretensions, were all open to them as well. I could see so clearly that Marco was hoping for some news of his mother, Visser One. He wondered if she was still here on Lyra, if she had survived our last encounter. I could see and feel Prince Jake's crushing weight of responsibility, the way he kept running things through his mind, over and over again, trying to figure out what had happened to Tobias and Rachel, desperate to find a way to protect the rest of us. And I could feel Cassie's mind as she cried for Rachel and Tobias, as she wondered whether we were doing the right thing, as she dealt with the after-effects of the violence we'd just endured. Wow, Marco said, obviously uncomfortable. I would just like you all to know that whatever thoughts of mine you're reading are totally made up. They aren't real. Same here, Prince Jake said quickly. Absolutely. Hey, Cassie said. They are just morphs to us, right? Lots of times we have trouble controlling the brain of the morph, but we usually handle it. So maybe... Maybe since these are just morphs to us, maybe we can turn off the psychic thing, Marco said, clutching at the idea. Then, one by one, I felt their minds close to me, and I closed my own. It seemed suddenly very lonely as we grabbed the water jets and rowed away through the brilliantly alive sea. Suddenly very lonely. But I guess each species feels most comfortable when they are just themselves. And for humans and endolites, secrets and lies and the loneliness of privacy are natural. Chapter 23 we passed through a loose ring of Lyran controllers set up around the far edges of the City of Worms. None challenged us. We were writing Yurk-issued water jets, and we stayed far enough off that no one could read our thoughts. The Lyran City rose from the seabed like a wondrous tower, perhaps half a thousand feet wide at its base, dwindling to a few dozen feet at the very top. The top pressed right against the sparkling water ceiling, up to the border between sea and sky. At the very top, huge fans sucked in air and blew out exhaust from the entire city. The city itself violated every logical law, at least as far as endolites or humans were concerned. Endolites and humans are accustomed to moving in two dimensions, left and right, forward and back. But in the water, up and down were just as likely as left or right. It looks like a giant Dairy Queen cone, poked full of a million holes, Cassie said. Look, doors everywhere. 
Windows and doors, all the same. The predominant color was pink, but there was blue and green and purple as well, in vast swatches of seemingly random color. Openings were everywhere. Lirans drifted in and out and around and through, a hundred feet up, twenty feet below us, everywhere. And like some slow-motion tornado, the long, electric blue worms swam around and around the city of worms. They formed an eerie halo. Even as strangers, we could tell the city was tense. There were weapons poking from many of the windows. And nestled up against the base of the city, floating free, were two craft I'd seen only in pictures. Andalite submarines. Are those good guys or bad guys? Prince Jake asked, gazing at the submarines. Or a little of each, Marco asked dryly. They are Andalite vessels, I said. Let's go say hello, Prince Jake said. We swam toward the submarines. As we got nearer, we could see that a transparent tunnel had been set up between the subs and the city. Andalite warriors were rushing through the tunnel on urgent errands, their tails cocked and ready. Down we went, sifting air from the water with our Lyran skin. Down we went, expecting at any moment to be challenged, even shot. But we passed through dozens of Lyrans who made no move to stop us. It's the psychic thing, Cassie said. They know who we are and why we're here. Then I guess they know who we're looking for, Prince Jake said. And to my amazement, an answer came. It was a vision that filled my head. A sort of arrow showing a doorway we should enter. Okay. Marco said, I guess we follow the yellow brick road. We entered the city through one of the thousands of windows. I don't know what I expected inside, but it wasn't what I found. The tower was merely a shell. Inside were seven or eight, maybe more, huge, floating, transparent bubbles. In each bubble there were levels, a dozen or more floors. There were open holes in the bottoms of the bubbles. Some seemed to be filled with water. Others were filled with air. All contained lyrans, doing work, sleeping, living. And one, mostly air, contained perhaps two dozen andalites on one floor. We entered the bubble from the bottom and stepped out at last onto dry ground. Two andalite warriors were waiting. Demorph, one said curtly. The Lyrans have told us who you are. Commander Galu is waiting. So, humility is just not something you Andalites do, is it? Marco asked. We demorphed. It felt good to be Andalite again. But I was worried. I was nervous. I had given my word to Prince Jake that he, and only he, would decide whose orders I should obey. It had seemed easy to make that promise before. But now we were going to see Galu. The idea of saying no to him. It made me gasp. We rushed and stumbled to the room where Galu waited. Only he wasn't waiting. He was rushing forward to meet us. He was flanked by three tough-looking Andalite security guards, 
and accompanied by his aide, an Andalite who had lost one stock eye and half his face from a war injury. Aris Aximili, Galut said without bothering to introduce himself. Yes, sir, I... No time, he said with a dismissive wave of his hand. I am a member of the highest circles, so I know all about your escapades on Earth. Yours and Alfangor's. Very disappointed in Alfangor. Although, by the galaxy, your brother could fight. I don't know how you came to be here with these humans of yours, but it is a stroke of luck. We need you. I was almost completely bowled over. First of all, Galoo even knowing my name was incredible. It would be as if a human child were sitting at home by the telephone and suddenly got a call from the head general of the army. Second, Galoo needed me? Needed me? Sir, may I introduce this human named Jake? I said I need you. Now stand to attention and listen to my... Sir, this is Jake, my prince. That stopped Galoo in mid-yell. The guards all stared incredulously at Prince Jake, then at me, then at Marco and Cassie, as if they might be able to explain. Every warrior must have a prince to follow, and the princes must obey the people, I said. Galoo looked like he was seriously considering using his old tail on me, but then he nodded stiffly. Just so, Arths. No one is a law unto themselves. We each must serve. Galoo turned to speak to Prince Jake. I have need of you to save this planet from the Yurks. Will you? Yes, Prince Jake said. You say yes without knowing what I'm asking. Will it save the Lyrans? Will it keep them free? And most of all, will it hurt the Yurks? Yes to all three, especially the last. If we save Lyra, it may turn the tide of the war against the Yurks. Then we'll do it. Kalu seemed surprised, maybe even impressed. In private thought speak, he said to me, I have known worse princes than this one. Chapter 24 Galu explained what he needed and why. It was exactly what I had suspected. The reason we had to flee the land and take to the sea. The reason I could not risk being taken by the Yurks. It had all been a trap. A trap for the Yurks. We knew the Yurks would take the battle to the continent, Galu said. And we thought it very likely they would defeat us there. So we had a backup plan. We have planted a series of quantum bombs around the continent. Our plan was to wait until the Yurks had moved all their troops down to the continent, then explode the bombs. I nodded. Yes, I suspected this. Prince Jake looked at me out of the corner of his eyes, then raised one eyebrow. It wasn't an angry look, as I interpret human expressions. It was a little reproachful, though. We had transferred to one of the submarines, and were already racing at maximum speed, south, to a point on the continent. The Lyrans don't need the continent. They are quite happy in their underwater cities, Galoo said. But there's been some kind of problem with setting off the bombs. Our forces were overrun much too quickly. 
With the Escalin forces, we should have held out longer. The main switch was never armed. We've been beaming the destruct signal for hours. Nothing. And the Yurks will soon discover our trap. It's now or never. I hesitated. Should I tell Galoo why our forces were so easily overrun? I took a deep breath. Sir, the Escalin was never in the fight. Galoo swiveled both stock eyes toward me. What? Captain Semelin was a traitor, I said. He set the ship toward a landing behind your lines. He was killed. Once it was clear the Escalin could not escape, Tactical Officer Harolin made the decision to fire all weapons while on the ground. No one survived, except for us and two of our friends who have disappeared. I could see Galoo slump. He seemed suddenly older, more frail. Why us? Morko said. Why do you need us to go in and arm this switch? We have few Andalites here on the planet now, and none who possess the wide array of morphs you have. Galoo explained. All Andalite warriors are morph-capable, but few acquire morphs or use them. That is mostly done by our people in intelligence. Spies. But you four may be able to penetrate the Yurk forces. Suddenly, he looked confused. His eyes went left, then right. I was sure it was four. Where is the other human? A cold lance of fear struck my hearts. Prince Jake was still there. Cassie, too. But Marco... Marco! Prince Jake cried. Marco! Marco! We are disappearing one by one, I said. Galoo yelled a thought-speak summons that was heard clear through the submarine. Science officer, report to me right now! This is insane, Cassie said, her eyes blazing. What is happening? One by one we're disappearing. Cold fear wormed through my insides. I felt sorry for Marco and the others. Very sorry. But now I was more afraid than anything. It didn't take too much imagination to figure out that the rest of us would be disappearing eventually. It's one thing to face an enemy. It's very different to wait, powerless, for some unseen force to simply delete you. The sub raced on through the bright Lyran Sea, but there was no time to enjoy the view. Prince Sheikh, Cassie, and I were surrounded by Andalites. We were cross-examined by the sub's science officer. In between questions from him, we were bombarded by questions from Galoo and a counterintelligence officer. It was nerve-wracking, but at least it kept my mind off the awful suspense of waiting. Waiting. Waiting for another one of us to disappear. How long were you in zero space? Are you sure Captain Semela knew the ship was heading for Yurk lines? What was the mass of the creature you morphed on Earth before being dragged into zero space? Did Captain Semela seem embittered, stressed? At last, after half an hour, Galoo put an end to it. Enough! Semela was a traitor. We have to accept that. He turned to the science officer. And you've asked the same question fifty times. Give me a hypothesis. 
Sir, I don't have enough. The science officer started to say, Just give me your best guess. Kalu demanded. I... I think these humans and this Earth are still caught in a residual flux field. It is pulling them back towards zero space. It may even be snapping them all the way back to Earth. But my best guess is what's happening is a sort of elastic effect. They were stretched through zero space and back into normal space, but a small amount of their mass is still back on Earth. It may be acting like an anchor. We're on some big zero space rubber band? Prince Jake asked. It's been stretching all this time, and now it's starting to snap back? Yes! The science officer said, after I explained what a rubber band was. Maybe all the way back to Earth, in which case Rachel and Tobias and Markle are still alive, Cassie said. Or maybe just into zero space, in which case... From the data you've given me, the effect appears to be accelerating. The science officer said, you will go now, one by one, faster and faster now. Like your friends, you will each disappear. Galoo said, Under these circumstances, I cannot ask you to carry out this mission. Prince Jake shrugged. Under these circumstances, it doesn't look like we have anything to lose. Chapter 25 We were briefed by one of Galoo's officers. The Central Arming Unit is well hidden. It is in what the Lyrans call a Bright Hole. Here on Lyra, the volcanic past created a number of large underground bubbles in the rock. Because the rock contains a great many phosphorescent minerals and bioorganisms, there is light in these holes, and thus life. What kind of life? Cassie asked. Even now, she was interested in living things. Plant only, aside from insects and microscopic animals. This particular bright hole can only be reached two ways. Either someone on the surface must tunnel down through several feet of rock, or one must travel underwater, up a river, enter an underwater cave, pass through an absolutely lightless tunnel, and emerge at last in the bright hole. Prince Jake took a deep breath. Cassie took a deep breath. I took a deep breath. We each looked at each other. Galoo said, That's not all. The river itself may be guarded by Lyran controllers. The lightless cave is inhabited by a species of snake that uses echolocation to strike at anything passing by. These snakes hang from the ceiling and walls. But once within the bright hole, you are safe. Unless, of course, the Yurks have already found it. Is it too late for us to change our minds? Prince Jake said. Galoo looked alarmed. It is humor, I said quickly. Human humor often consists of pretending to wish something one does not really wish. What makes you so sure I don't mean it? Prince Jake muttered. More humor, I explained to Galoo. The submarine took us to the mouth of the river. It was as close as it could take us without becoming far too visible for safety. I know the oceans are salt water here, just like on Earth, Cassie said. But how about the rivers? The rivers are lower saline, the briefing officer said. 
Cassie shook her head. Hammerheads are saltwater fish. I don't know how they deal with freshwater. I just don't know. But they're still probably the best morph for moving fast and winning fights. Good luck, Galoo said. The freedom of this planet rests on your tails. Or... Or whatever humans have that would be equivalent of tails. Shoulders, Cassie said. As long as there's no pressure, Prince Jake said. That would be human humor, Galoo said. Plus a little human fear, Prince Jake said. But then he laughed. Five minutes later, we were in the river, swimming against the current, our dorsal fins slicing upward into the air. This should be interesting, Prince Jake said darkly. I smell lyrins, I said. Up ahead, I recognize the smell from before. Yup, Cassie agreed. Good lyrins are bad, that's the question. We powered ahead. Through the slightly murky river water, we saw them. Two pebbly yellow tentacled amphibians. Psychic amphibians. As soon as we were within range of them, the Lyrans knew what we were. They turned and swam away as if their lives depended on it. After them! Prince Jake cried. They were heading for the banks of the river, trying to get up out of the water beyond our reach. They didn't have water jets, just their natural Lyran bodies. We were faster, but the bank was close. Closer! The water grew shallow, no more than seven feet, five feet. The Lyrans were kicking up mud, but my shark senses could feel the electrical field of the Lyrans now. Blind, scraping my belly in mud, I lunged. My teeth bit down. I clamped and held on and struggled to pull the creature back out into the water. But then, up through the ripply surface, I saw a huge, looming hork bajir. Two, no, four of them. They came stomping out into the water. I pulled back. I tried to turn as the Lyran kept fighting me. Then I heard the Lyran's psychic cry to the hork bajir. Explosives! The whole continent is rigged to explode. There is a central switch. Bright hole. It's in a... I bit down harder. The pain stopped the Lyran from saying more. A hork blade slashed down into the water. It sliced me, but not deep. I let go of the Lyran, jerked my head right, bit down with all my might on the nearest hork leg. I heard a howl of pain coming burbling through the water. The Lyran was scrambling away. Still half-blind, I lunged. The hork had backed off, and now I dragged the Lyran controller back out into deeper water. No! The yerk in his head cried. Oh, yes, I said. I swept behind him and bit off the lobe at the back of his head. Out came the yerk. Are you okay, Brother Lyran? I asked. I am now. Thank you, my Andalite friend. Hurry, hurry. The yerks know your mission now. Hurry. I turned back upstream. Cassie and Jake fell in beside me. They had each had their own battles in the murky, shallow water. How long will it take the Yurks to find this bright hole? 
Prince Jake asked. Using the sensors aboard their orbiting ships, they will have a map of every subsurface cavern on the continent within five minutes. How long to find the right bright hole? I don't know. We must hurry. The fate of this planet depends on us. Chapter 26 There! Is that the underwater cave entrance? Cassie cried. I think so. It is in the right area. But there could be dozens of caves. No time to worry about it, Prince Jake said. We plunged into the mouth of the cave. The floor rose steadily, and we swam on grimly, blind, scared, and in a desperate hurry. Suddenly, I felt my snout break the surface. Air! I think we're here, Prince Jake said. Demorph! Cassie, what do you think? Batmorphs? There was no answer. Cassie! Cassie! Prince Jake cried. The rubber band effect. She's gone. Back to Earth. Or... It's happening faster. Prince Jake said. Less time between people disappearing. Just two of us now. We could both be snapped back before we reach the switch. He sounded like I felt. Like he couldn't breathe. Like he couldn't stop his heart from pounding. It was too much. Demorph. Nothing to do now but hurry and try to get this job done. Prince Jake said. Yes, Prince Jake. I said. You know, Wax, there's just the two of us now. We could probably drop the whole prince thing. He paused, then added. You could just call me the Jake formerly known as Prince. Is that a bit of humor? Yeah, a joke. Not much of one, but Marco isn't here, so I figure... At that point, he made the transition to mostly human, and lost his thought-speak ability. I emerged as Endolite, standing in a cold, absolutely black cave, with water still sloshing over my hooves. But, Prince Jake said, his mouth sounds echoed slightly. I focused on the bat. I felt myself shrinking, although there was nothing to see for comparison but I could almost feel an upward breeze as I dropped down from my own height, down to the stumpy few inches of the bat. Just you and me now, Axe. Yes. If one of us is stopped, for any reason, the other one has to keep going. Clear? We fired echolocation bursts and saw the sketchy portrait of a cave that stretched on and on, far past our faintest ultrasonic echoes. We took to wing. We flapped up on leather wings and raced at full, tearing speed. We have to remember these snakes, I said. Ooh, Prince Jake said with a sort of shudder. Yes, I agreed. We flapped as if our lives depended on it. Through jutting rocks and stalactites. Around sudden turns. Up sudden chimneys. And down sudden wells. All of it reduced to colorless lines in our mind's eye. A sketch drawn with blasts of sound. Around one hairpin turn and suddenly... A blast of sounds! A cacophony of echolocating squeaks and trills! The snakes! I cried. 
Our own echolocation showed them as writhing lines that hung from the low ceilings and reaching out from the walls. There were thousands, millions, all firing their own echolocations, yammering and confusing the echoes of our own blasts. Suddenly, in all the ultrasonic noise, the pictures in my head became distorted. Wild, swerving, swooping lines, writhing borders of objects that no longer seemed solid. What do we do? Prince Jake asked. As Rachel would say if she were here, we go for it. It was a nightmare. Deadly snakes filled the air. Lost, confused, we powered on, flapping wings that became more and more shredded as more and more snakes found their target. I lost maneuverability, losing speed. I had lost sight of Prince Jake altogether. I could no longer tell up from down. I was spinning, flapping madly, afraid and confused. Lost! Lost in a squirming madhouse of darkness. And then, swoosh! I blew free of the snakes. The cave walls backed off. The ceiling was gone. And light! Blessed light was glowing all around me. I was in the bright hole. I soared upward on tattered, shredded wings, up into the stale air. Everywhere, flowers and plants in absurd colors exploded from the walls of the hole. Prince Jake! Jake! I called. But there was no answer. Quite suddenly, I was all alone. Chapter 27 I landed on a clump of screamingly orange mold or lichen or something and began to demorph. Within minutes, I was standing alone, an andalite in a bizarre underworld universe cut off from the world outside. The bright hole was perhaps 500 feet at its longest, half that wide. The roof was no more than a hundred feet over my head. It was very large for a hole in the ground, but it felt very small. No rain had ever fallen here. No sun had ever shone here. The only light was from the greenish glow of the walls. A light that never grew brighter, never grew dim. It was alive, but dead feeling. A wonder of nature but a creeping, spirit-crushing place. In the center of the place was the only artificial object, a vertical cylinder, five feet tall, a foot in diameter. On the side was a control pad, showing glowing blue numbers. Right where Galoo said it would be, just as Endolite Intelligence agents had placed it. I looked cautiously around, but I saw no hork no taxons, no geds, just unnatural plants in an unnatural place. I exhaled, trying to shed my tension. Whoever decided to hide this thing here sure picked a good hiding place, I said. I began to trot toward the cylinder, but the ground was rough, rising, falling, overrun with mosses and molds and clumps of hideous flowers. There were no paths. I ended up having to step carefully, only able to hurry when I was sure of a place to leap. An explosion rocked the room. 
The concussion trapped in that hole knocked me off my feet and left me temporarily deaf. Brilliant light! Falling rock and debris. A hole had been blown into the top of the bright hole. Lyran sunlight streaming down in a blinding shaft. And down, down through the shaft of light, the hork bajir dropped. Their fall was slowed by small rockets on their feet and tails. The rockets burned red. Two, four, a dozen hork bajir warriors falling in slow motion, unlimbering their dracon beams. I could see them peering about as they fell, searching for the cylinder. And for me. I ran. I didn't care if I broke a leg. I ran. I leapt. I fell and lurched back up. It was a race between falling hork and me. The dragon beam stabbed at me, missed, and boiled a bright blue cabbage into steam. Just a few more feet. Suddenly, my hands were pressed on the cold metal. The code! What was the code? My fingers flew. A hork bajir screamed. Ah! I felt a burn across my back, a glancing blow from a dracon beam. The code! The code! I entered it. Was I right? Had I remembered? Then... Sister Mond. The cool, thought-speak voice of the computer. Warning. This system is armed. I collapsed, leaning back against the cylinder. Galoo had said once they got confirmation that we had armed the system, they'd wait half an hour to give us time to escape. Half an hour would be too long. The Yurks would be able to disarm it by then. A huge hork hit the ground right in front of me. I punched the built-in communicator on the cylinder. This is Earth's Aximili. I said, Do it now! Do it now! Blow the Yurks off this planet! Velshig Underlight! The Yurk inside the hork screamed. I was calm. Shockingly calm. Detonation in ten seconds. The computer warned. Disarm that weapon! The hork commander yelled. Switching to Gallard, the interstellar language. Seven? I don't think so, Yurk. This time, you lose. This time, you die. Five? The hork raised his dracon beam in rage. You'll die first, Underlight Scum! Three? He squeezed the trigger. The dracon beam fired. Point-blank range. Five feet from my face. One. I literally saw the Dracon beam stop. The beam stopped in mid-air as time froze. I heard a... And suddenly, I was no longer there. Chapter 28 I felt the warm human skin beneath my six legs. What? I yelped. What the? Rachel yelled. Whoa! Whoa! I am serious. Whoa! Marco cried. This is way too strange. I was back. On Earth. 
in Mosquito Morph. We were all back. All back. And all at the same exact moment. We were in the hospital room, surrounded by human controllers who were busy firing human guns out the window at the bushes below, still trying to kill the Andalite. Me. But that was not the biggest problem I had. Because right then, as I sat on vibrating human flesh, surrounded by giant hairs, a huge, sky-filling object came hurtling down toward me. No way! Rachel yelled. Axe, move out! I fired my wings. The object, five fingers, each as big around as a large tree, came slapping down at me. Ow! said Hewlett Aldershot Third, as he slapped the spot where I'd been busily biting him. Ow! he said again. The human, he's awake! one of the human controllers said. He's not supposed to wake up yet! another moaned. He's in a coma! What do we do? The visitor will kill us! The police are coming! We can't be taken! Run! Run! What do we do with this Aldershot human? We have no orders. Run! Someone yelled again, and this time the rest agreed. There came a loud vibrating thunder as the human controllers all raced from the room in a panic. Moments later, a frightened nurse came in. Oh, Mr. Aldershot, you're... you're conscious! Of course I'm conscious, he said. Nurse, are you aware that this room is full of mosquitoes? Chapter 29 So, wait a minute here, Rachel said. We get zapped back here through zero space, one by one, at different times. But when we get back here, we all arrive at the same moment, and no time has passed. I nodded my human head. We were at the mall at the place where the excellent food places are. I was in human morph, behaving perfectly like a human. Exactly, Rachel. Exactly. Exactly. We arrived back at the precise moment when we were snatched away. We were all yanked away at the same moment, so naturally we all arrived back at the same moment. Yanked. Yanked is such a strange word. Yank. Yankta. Yeah, Marco said. That's what's strange. The word yanked. Us turning into mosquitoes to suck some guy's blood so we could morph into him, and instead end up in the middle of some war to control psychic yellow frogs, and, oh, by the way, blowing up a small continent full of yurks, saving an entire species, then getting back here to find out Koma Man woke up from a mosquito bite Delivered by a morphed alien-slash-deer-slash-scorpion-slash-four-eyed-centaur. That's all totally normal. That's just an average day. Dear Diary, another boring average day. Though someone said yanked. I recognized his tone. Sarcasm. It is a form of humor. So I laughed using mouth parts. Ha! Ha ha! 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 I considered, then added... Ha! Huh. Prince Jake, Cassie, Markle, Rachel, and Tobias, in his own human morph, all stared at me. What was that? Rachel demanded. I laughed. 
Don't... Don't do that, Ox, Prince Jake said. It's disturbing somehow. Yes, Prince Jake. Don't call me Prince. I will call you the Jake, formerly known as Prince. Marco made a horrified face. Oh no, now he's making jokes. Bad, bad jokes. Actually, that was my joke, Prince Jake said stiffly. Oh fine, I get it. You can't laugh at my jokes. Okay, great. I don't even care. I was an Andalite, all alone, far, far from home, far from my own people, except that sometimes your own people are not just the ones who look like you. Sometimes the people who are your own can be very different from you. Can we eat cinnamon buns now? I asked, hopefully. Bunza! Bunza!